When the sun welcomes us in And the earth's protective skin Fails and peels back face to chin Then we start it all again Why do you frown? Why do you try? Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to the Directors Club Podcast, and this is Jim Laskowski. And this is Patrick Repole. Repole. Yes, yes, okay. I changed the pronunciation. You know, you legally you can change your name, and you know you have to go through a lot of red tape, but you can also keep your name spelled the same way and change the pronunciation legally, too. Mm. A lot of people don't know that. I'm just going to start calling you Repole Man. <laughs> anyway, I think the reason why I sound like this is just I get overly excited introducing the show, and I watch a lot of Prices Right. And Do I don't you? Know, I, yeah, I don't know if that's ever going to change. I just, Why do you watch a lot of Prices Right? Um, because I love people. I love watching people go crazy over capitalism, and uh, it's it's fun to guess. And we're still waiting to watch Plinko at some point. Like we keep, we I just I I told Heather that we're going to stop watching once we come across Plinko. But they 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 just don't. Uh, do they don't game? do Plinko anymore. Not as often. Like all the all the they new. used to do Plinko all the time. I know, right? So I got to the point where I'm even like downloading older episodes with Bob Barker just to find a fucking Plinko game, and it's just not happening. So I'm getting kind of bummed. But You're down... Wait a second. <laughs> so you were... <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jim. Um, I told so you, you I go through phases. Yeah, I'll say you go through phases, Jim. So you, you found like a torrent of old Price is Right episodes. Yes. And you've downloaded them looking for an episode in which Bob Barker hosts and they play plinko yep that's uh that's sometimes how i spend my free time when i'm not doing a million is it, other things is, is it is, is plinko so plinko is that exciting for you yeah i guess it taps into some childhood nostalgia of like when i would stay home sick and watch prices right with my mom maybe that's yeah. the only thing i can think of yeah but like i'm, try- I'm trying to figure out what exactly it is, is the i mean obviously the drama you could write a you could write an essay on the drama of Plinko. Mm-hmm. Plinko's a, Plinko's a great game. Well, just the the reaction you know of the contestants. I, I, if you pause it at the right time, you get some great still shots. And if you check sure. my Facebook wall, you might see some every once in a while. I know people are going to want to sign up for that. Stop. You're, you're promoting your Facebook wall at this point, Jim. Um, I wanted I wanted to talk about Plinko. Because Let's if you have a, cast. like if, if you have a if you have a strong enough working knowledge of the prices of like Centrum Silver and shaving cream, like most prices right games, luck uh, isn't such a big factor. But Plinko is all luck, right? Yeah, I think it is. And that's and that's the and that's hands down the most. I mean, people like the Yodeler, but I don't think people really know how that game works. I think people yeah, just that- like. The, the yodeler is there. We don't see the yodeler anymore either. It's kind of frustrating. Do they, have, do they have new high tech games? What what is Price Not is Right? Really? It, so it, it's Drew Carey. Mm-hmm. It's it was actually noted, very good. It's noted to Hollywood Republican Drew Carey. I'd expect nothing less. Drew Carey. Drew Carey's excellent. Yeah. Uh, I I always loved the Drew Carey show. I was always a big supporter of the Drew Carey show. I <laughs> I was always <laughs> a big supporter of that down on its luck. Uh, 
Emmy-nominated uh, smash hit uh, sitcom. Yeah. I mean, they still have games that you come to expect, like the one where you roll the dice, and you have to guess if the number is higher or lower, and uh, punch a hole, or whatever the hell it what is. The, what are you talking about, punch a hole? It's, isn't it called punch a hole? Uh, it it could punch? be, but I don't know what game you're talking about. It's it's where they, like, if they get the uh, the the price of the product right, they get four chances to punch a hole, and... Uh, <laughs> There may be uh, $10,000 waiting for them if you, they punch you the right You consistently hole. baffle me every time that's we what, record. That's what I live for. They had four chances to punch a hole? Like, that is the... What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I'm going to have to find a clip for you. Do then. they punch a hole in... Is it like a punch yeah, card where, hole. They, where it's a paper no. and they punch... Or is it already is it already a hole? Or are they, make, are they creating a hole with their fist? They're creating a hole with their fist by punching into these paper... Uh, you know, it's like a giant wall, and then they punch through specific holes looking for $10,000, and for m- most of the time, they don't find it. Sure. Scar- yeah. sc- I mean, scarcity is such an important part of the game, but I've never seen right. this, and I've never even seen this referenced. I don't know if, you know, I'm, I'm not a Price is Right aficionado. Uh, I know recently someone, like, won the Price is Right while on mushrooms or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't even seen that clip. I can't. I don't claim to be a Price is Right expert, but I've never heard of Punch a Hole. Yeah, I don't think that's what it's called, but that would be funny if it was. It could. Be. Or or stop. That's enough. There's another game where they're like uh, they have to guess the price of the car, and they keep going through prices, and they have to not go over and stuff. It's not called Stop. That's enough, but <laughs> it's called you I mean, sound- that's too much. God, you you either sound like a six year old or like a forty five year old mom who's just like making up their own names for things. I'd prefer to sound like a mom at yeah. this point, and that's fine. Sure, I also I can maybe I just want to host this podcast now just to baffle you because uh, I did I, I'm I'm watching uh, the Bachelorette too. You're watching the Bachelorette and, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the fundamental difference? I, I was, what's the fundamental I, difference between <laughs> the Bachelor and the Bachelorette? Well, there's just a bunch of airheaded dudes for the most part. Um, so no difference this time around. No, not really. But uh, I, I was very sad to see Marcus go, um, and I have a feeling that she's going to choose a guy who I, I'm kind of creeped out by. He's just uh, he seems a little like he seems a little possessive and insecure, and I don't trust him at all. And I'm, but she's not seeing that at all. So I'm really concerned for for Andy at this point. Oh boy! Um, if you ever want to write a screenplay, that might be a good starting point for like a character backstory. Is it's about mm-hmm. a couple who they they met on The Bachelor or a you know equivalent show? Yeah, and it's like yeah, no, that would be good. And like in the movie, like they occasionally get recognized on the street or whatever. Like I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is The Bachelor sounds like a fucking horror movie, and I can't believe that you watch it without just totally creeping out the whole time. Like you, you go. Oh, he's she's going to choose a guy who I think is creepy. I think everyone involved is creepy. I think the production I, assistants are creepy for for making it. I think there there's a war in my brain between that perspective and actually getting suckered in. Like I do find it creepy, but at the same time, I wind up stupidly caring. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can fi- I can find that being a very compelling dynamic. I can understand why that would make for compelling television. Oh sure, absolutely. That sort of internal I mean, battle. It, yeah, it's fascinating. I like wrestling with my emotions sometimes. It's it's a joy. 
Uh, Have you? Well, I, yeah. I, I, I feel the same way when I watch wrestling. <laughs> to be, I'm going to be honest. Like wrestling is a, is a thing where it's like you can watch it and you can like be like, oh, this is hilariously dumb, and it's. I mean, even if you're just watching it and pretending that all you care about is the fights, it's not as if like the wrestling matches are that exciting. Um, but you can get you know if you just sort of take a step back and a deep breath and you just follow things, you can get sucked into character storylines and stuff like that. Yeah, even when they're phony as fuck. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's something I never saw myself watching. And then, you know, because Heather and I like to unwind with beer and TV, we just watch some random shit sometimes. And it turned out to be like, you know, Mr. Ed and then Price is Right and The Bachelorette. Um, and... Uh, I don't. I don't feel shame. You don't have to feel myself. shame. I mean, I I, yeah. I mock you out of love. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> I think that's that's what makes our show so great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because it's because the same way you go back and forth on uh, being genuinely engaged by the Bachelor and uh, hating the concept of the Bachelor. I feel like that's that's sure. how I feel about you. I, I like I kind of hate the concept of Jim. No, I'm joking. But <laughs> but some of the things. Well, every now and then I can understand yeah. that. But um, you know, it, it's it's just some it's something that's an interesting phase to delve into. Sure. And I mean, there was a time where I was like, you know, just only writing songs or doing cover songs every night, and instead of watching goofy TV. And now I'm kind of like, it's fun to turn off my brain and enjoy just some random stuff like that and i i gotta admit i'm i'm looking forward to seeing a dumb summer movie like lucy coming up so you never know every now and then i surprise myself yeah it just occurred to me um how more or less you know how similar we were when we first met and uh we've both sort of grown into very different people i feel even over the course of the podcast yeah, I, I would say so, for sure, and uh, I think it's 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 great. I, I also, I, you know, it's funny is that I think if we included, I need to look into this and double check, but if we included our bonus episodes, we're a lot closer to one hundred than we uh, than we think. Sure, but we don't have to rush so. the uh, anniversary or whatever. I don't know what we would do for that. We can just. Oh, well, I just want another reason to drink a whole bottle of champagne on the show. You don't, you know? need, Jim. <laughs> you don't need permission to drink a whole bottle of champagne. Okay. All the all the permission you need is that you can afford the uh, like nine bucks it takes for a for a, for a bottle of Andre cold duck or that Andre cold duck. Yeah, you get some of that, that cold duck. Like in grape you. juice. Um, yeah, yeah, that's delicious. And uh, if people really really want to hear us get drunk for every episode. What they can do, and I have to look at my phone real quick, but there's a new podcast app that I'm in love with, and I th- I'm, I want to plug it because I think it's the best one out there so far. <laughs> it's called it's called Overcast. Okay. And um, it's just, it's definitely the most user friendly app I've had for podcasts. But the 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 big perk is that it has uh, a feature where you can do smart speed, which shortens all the silences. In, in a podcast, any podcast. So if you, you don't, if you want to hear a silence-free episode of us, click on Smart Speed, and then it gets rid of all of our dead silences. And the cool, the cool thing I tried out for one of our older episodes is I did the the minus speed, you know, because it has like two times the speed or one point five the speed. But I did 
um, minus five o speed okay. for us, and we sound fucking sloshed for every episode. That if, way. if you if you Wait, slow down uh, if you slow down the speed, it's the uh, drunk Jeff Goldblum effect. Yeah, we just sound like this the whole time, and it's really funny. We sound stoned and drunk. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I gotta, so I, I gotta say, I gotta it. say, you're leaning more towards six year old boy than forty five year old mom right now. I but know. that's fine. That's, that's true. Fi- that sounds good to me. I still don't have a farts are funny. I still don't have a smartphone, so but I, I bet that stuff's fun. Well, you're smarter for it because the less distractions there are, the better. I'm worried about future generations and all these distractions and stuff and what it's doing to their brains. They gotta, they gotta allow for creativity time, and by doing that, is sitting in a room, looking at the ceiling, being bored, or turning off the car radio and just driving with nothing on. I used to do that shit all the time, and that's how I became very creative. So, all right. Well, if you're decrying, I came up with okay. The- if, if you're if you're decrying FM radio in cars as some a well, worry no, of a new generation, <laughs> like <laughs> like I think no, I think you've gone like you your old fashioned like 30s old fashioned like 1930s. <laughs> I'm yeah, worried about what all true. this this uh, hopped up jazz music is doing to our ki- children's brains. <laughs> if you're worried about t- car radio, I, Miles Davis is the devil. It's just yeah, exactly. I think it's just different now. I think it's just um, people are very creative. You know who's very creative is our director of this episode, which is Kelly Reichart. And it's and, Ka- um, Kelly Reichart. I think it's Reichart, or is it Reichart? Oh, I I. I just say Reichert. Oh, okay. I mean, it could be either. I honestly, I, I watched, a, I listened to a couple Reichert. interviews. I watched a couple interviews, but I can't recall the exact nuances of the pronunciation or pronunciation, uh, if mm. you will. <laughs> I uh, that would change the the choice of song I want to do if it's not Kelly Reichardt. Well, then do then so. it's Kelly Reichardt officially then. Okay. Um, speaking of yeah. songs, I think it's about time for the What We Watched song to introduce the What We Watched segment. Hey, everybody, here's a What We Watched song. I want to see we are the best. Psycho up in Jaws. Devil in a blue dress. Flesh and the Santa Claus. I will travel to the red box. Searching for Wasn't that a great song? It was. It might have been my favorite that you've done thus far. Yeah, yeah. Well, to be fair, I had a lot of help from Regina. I'm assuming. Aww. I'm assuming. I haven't recorded it yet, but that's how it generally, guys, generally goes. You know, you guys should do a podcast. What, that would be great. What would me and Regina do a podcast on? Uh, sharks or... 
what's I mean like I don't know I think <laughs> it's funny like when I think of the first podcast I listened to they were literally just couples talking about things going on in their lives or political issues yeah. or uh, gender roles or all sorts of things sure <laughs> like Don and Drew cast or um, what was, God, was that other one or Jeanette and Paul's cast or N- Nick and Dean's Pat <laughs> Nick and Dean I don't know what I'm saying anyway nicotine like cast some, you're going old yeah. school what was the first podcast you ever listened to it was probably the Don and Drew show and what was the Don and, and Drew the, show the, by the way this like is what I we said. watched this week the Don and Drew show <laughs> go on yeah um, that and then of course it was film spotting and then the Ricky Gervais podcast those were like the three first ones I ever listened to on a regular basis. But no, Don and Drew were just, you know, a couple talking about relationships or sex or um, random stuff, movie reviews. It was just literally a couple just talking, and I found it endlessly interesting. Like, there's, there's a, if they're still podcasting, it's got to be like a thousand episodes at this point because they were recording like sure. twice a week or something. Well, I mean, and especially at the time before podcast, like now most podcasts I listen to, I don't stick with them. And I'm, most of the time I'm thinking like, God, I wish these people had some broadcasting experience. Like most of the people I listen to are too low key and they're too low energy and they are too um, inexpressive and unable to like get their point across verbally and stuff like that. But at the time, like, just having a media that was so low impact and just so personal and mm-hmm. and it was clear – it was like there was nothing – I mean, other than, you know, the NPR shows that were also, you know, syndicated through iTunes. Like, there was nothing professional about any of them. So there were always just people and their friends. And then by default, yeah. you just always got wrapped up, wrapped up in their inside jokes and stuff and – you know, they just sort of kept you company that way, and uh, I, I, I uh, like, I can't tell if the first podcast I listened to was the Ricky Gervais show, which which is more produced. That's sort of the opposite of what I'm talking about, or the Chud show. Um, but either way, oh my God is the yeah. Ricky Gervais had the best laugh ever. My God, right, right. It, it, it became <laughs> obnoxious. The more you, the more like you know about Ricky Gervais, the more familiar he became as a celebrity. The more obnoxious. His sort of whole thing mm-hmm. came because you just it seemed to be coming from a different place, um, like just. I hope you don't. I hope you don't think we're too low energy. No, 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 no. We're fine. Because we can change it up, you know. I could be like, "Hey, everybody, it's you could. We're going to review Space Chimps, everyone. Oh my god, you couldn't. Houston, you could we have a problem. I, we could try. We could do a bonus episode that's like twenty minutes long and see if we can. We can do an FM. Can we just do a bonus episode on space chimps? Well, we don't have to be space chimps, but I'm saying, like, if we want to try to do a bonus <laughs> episode in which we had an FM DJ, uh, radio DJ level of intensity, and we wouldn't be able to sustain it too long, but like a 20 minutes where we just focused on one movie, and we saw if we could just keep pushing through silences and keep talking and keep, you know, that, that sort of FM radio DJ thing, that'd be fun. We could try it. I don't think we could. Yeah. I think at this point we just no, are what we are. I, I, you never know. Back in the day when I used to try an energy drink or two. The, yeah. uh, if it's a very specific if it's a very specific thing I'm passionate about and I'm and I'm drinking, I could probably just keep rambling and, and going and going and going. But it's it's a it's a it's yeah. a very specific chemistry that has to be going on. But hey Jim, uh speaking of that mm-hmm. awesome what we watch song uh that we just heard. 
uh, yeah. that we heard like four minutes ago at this point. Jesus, um, well, what what are you even watching lately? Other than Price oh is Right, God. of course. Uh, basically just Price is Right, Mr. Ed and Bachelorette. That's it. <laughs> sure. That's all I'm watching. That's, I mean, that, that covers day, the, seven days a week. That right there. You got a tragedy, you got comedy, and you got product placement. Those are the three big masks. <laughs> in, uh, is, Mr. Ed, is Mr. Ed the tragedy now that I that you sent me that story? Oh, that's right. Mr. That Mr. Ed is a zebra. It's Mr. Zed now. Yeah. I'm pretty disturbed by it's it. It's pretty sad. Uh, no, but yeah. obvious, obviously Mr. Ed, comedy. Obviously Bachelorette, drama, um, you know, tragedy. And then... Uh, Price is Right was the forerunner. Like they, they were the first show to like just realize, oh, we could do a show that's all product placement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. I didn't get it at the time that they were like telling me how low the price of Centrum Silver was. <laughs> like it didn't occur to me at the time that they had ulterior motives other than game show dramatics. Um, but no, other than those three things, uh, have you managed to at all eke yourself out and see anything? I've seen twelve things. Yeah, which is a lot. And you know how we handle when we have a lot of movies sure. all at once. Sure. What do we do? Uh, we do a lightning round. And here's the lightning round theme song. That was a fun theme song, too. I know, that one right? I just sort of pulled like the, the what we watch song I spent my time on the lightning round theme song and I'm sure you could tell just by listening to it I kind of just pulled that one out of my ass um, yeah nothing but at any that. rate we have the uh, lightning round Jim this is the sound you're going to hear every time the lightning round Ooh, is over that's a good yeah yeah sound. it's a glass and a remote control I, uh, I, uh, I, I take what's around me and I make art and that's what makes me an outsider artist um so you said you got yeah I've got a regular Banksy on my got, hands here. Nice. Banksy's not an yeah. outsider artist. <laughs> oh okay. Outsider artist is like that guy uh, who drew all those, like that weird pedophile janitor. I don't remember that guy's name. Oh no. <laughs> uh, you know, like when someone dies and they find their in their garage that they've been cre- crafting this you know multimedia epic fantasy weird thing or Marwin Call that was a good documentary about an outsider artist. Oh yeah, that was really good. I need to watch that. Yeah, again. yeah, I loved it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. at any rate, okay. Jim, you have forty-five seconds on the clock on the official Directors Club clock. The way lightning rounds work, you have twelve movies. You're going to be talking about them. You have forty-five seconds for each. So you better shove every insight, every thought, everything that you can possibly say about these movies in the span of less than a minute. When you hear this ding. Then you have to move on to the next movie. Jim, are you familiar with how the rules of the lightning round starts? Okay, I've added one more uh, twist. Here is this puck. I want you to drop it down a pegboard. You're going to see the puck bounce around back and forth. And depending (laughs) on what slot it lands in, that's going to determine what prize you win, if any. I hope it's a new boat. Yeah, it's a new boat. (laughs) What if a contestant's, like, from Iowa? Is it just, like, understood that they have to sell the boat? (laughs) <laughs> or like it's like they get a new car and it's like oh great insurance yeah pretty much okay anyway well, we can do we're this. not gonna do a, we're I, not I, we're I, not actually I'm, gonna do a plinko lightning round we're gonna do a, a a real lightning round yeah i'm definitely more nervous because i'm not mr think off the top of my head guy that, but uh I'll, that's I'll what makes this fun make it fun and interesting okay so when you hear the when you hear the ding that we've already uh, established twice just start going jim are you ready 
Jim, are you ready? No, you don't have to repeat after me. Just, just, just answer okay. the question. Jim, are you ready? Yes, Patrick, I am. Let's start off with The Imposters. It's uh, from 1999, directed by Stanley Tucci. I've been curious to see the other films he's made because I'm such a huge fan of Big Night. This is kind of, it starts off as a delightful little romp that's an homage to like early screwball comedies, which I happen to be a huge, huge, huge fan of as of late. And it starts out great. I, I like the little tip of the hat to silent films with Stanley Tucci and Oliver Platt playing uh, struggling actors who run into various comic mishaps and a slew of great character actors that range from Alfred Molina to Steve Buscemi. Really liked Campbell Scott in this, but um, the problem is, is that once we get sidetracked with subplots involving the side characters, it loses momentum and comedic steam. Um, but it's, yeah, it wasn't terrible. But anyway, uh, a movie I actually like a lot more that's kind of in that same vein is this movie Down With Love. Um, it's a f- kind of a homage to Doris Day and Rock Hudson comedies. It's full of puns and sight gags. At times, its sense of humor reminded me of Top Secret. Um, it's inventive with its production and costume design. Uh, I I like the fact that it's this unironic, uncynical battle of the sexes. That's kind of the romantic comedy I would like to see more of, but audiences would probably find it too cute, forced, or quirky for quirky's sake. Uh, it's worth seeing for David Hyde Pierce doing his impression of Tony Randall meets Kevin Klein. Uh, I, I really think it's a hilarious comedy, overlooked, and people need to see that if they're fans of early screwball comedies. Um, and it has a very... Well, oh I my just God. shattered the glass. Go ahead, keep going. Oh my God, that was you must have been a huge fan of that movie. So yeah, forty Sn- seconds, Snowpiercer. It's a near masterpiece that happens to be now my favorite film of 2014. It's uh, impeccably done with this holy shit claustrophobic setting. <laughs> Incredibly well done set pieces. Um, the confrontation that takes place in a sauna room. Holy crap. Uh, I love the tonal shifts throughout. They never feel out of place. And uh, it gives it gives us a chance to acclimate to the bizarre nature of everything taking place. And uh, it has this weird Terry Gilliam-possessed uh, Tilda Swinton, who is absolutely hilarious. It's just the kind of mainstream escapist entertainment that I think we need more of each and every summer. I w- I'm a huge fan of this Bing! movie. <laughs> Sans Soleil. I hope that's how you pronounce it. I'm terrible with French, but uh, it's an older film from the director of La Jetée, and this is a visual exercise. It's kind of akin to Koyana Scotsi, only without the uh, Philip Glass score. It's it's replaced by these interesting musings that you would find in a Terrence Malick film. It's an orchestrated mosaic of a travelogue. It's got these really interesting photographic preoccupations of different cultures. And even with the constant voiceover adding poetic overtones, I really love this movie because of its brilliant imagery. I, I was like taken by so much of it. Uh, images of animals together and just crazy stuff and even things like televisions and synchronization it's just crazy crazy hodgepodge that i think everybody would love ida which is another one of the best films of the year this is from director paul palikowski who also did the great movie my summer of love with emily blunt that i'm a huge fan of so this is a movie about an orphan who is brought up by nuns in a convent and before she takes her vows, she is determined to see her only living relative. When they meet, they learn of a family secret uh, that sets 
uh, and on a different path. It's one of those great, simple stories about self-discovery with some of the best black and white cinematography you'll see this side of Bergman. Um, It's a very subtle, assured story. People discovering where they belong, all the while questioning their religions and ideology. Uh, I really liked the ambiguous ending. So, I think you've heard of this one, Patrick. It's called Pick Up on South Street. Um, after hearing your take on this one, along with Kurt, I was sold on finally sitting down to watch this bad boy. And, oh, I was impressed. I really was. I think it might be my favorite Samuel Fuller film now. I really like his uh, implementation of film noir. He's unafraid to bear all of the grit, the darkness, and the brutality. It really invites the viewer to take part in the seedy world of manipulation but manages to make it really alluring at the same time with its dialogue. I, the messiness of the final confrontation is counterbalanced with that incredible silent opening that feels really sleazy in all the right ways. Um, definitely reminded me of some of the works of Joseph Losey, which I believe you mentioned as well. It's a damn near perfect masterpiece in every single way. Um, I need to check out more Samuel Fuller films, apparently. Dang. So, as much as I loved Samuel Fuller's take on the pickpocket world, I finally sat down to watch Pickpocket, which is now an all-time favorite movie of mine, and uh, it has some of the best action set pieces that are just nearly silent in execution. It's a really good, brutal character study of decay. It reminds me a lot of this other movie I saw recently called Blast of Silence, only Pickpocket has a little less voiceover, but... um, Brisson is this incredible filmmaker who's who values uncomfortable stillness and silence, but that adds to the tension level, and um, it becomes a really interesting self-destructive portrayal of human nature. Um, and like I said, it contains most, some of the most invigorating moments ever captured on Dang. film. Oh my God, that heartbreaking final shot! Uh, it happened one night, which is a movie I can't believe I've take, it's taken me this long to see. Me neither. Uh, yeah, I know. It's, I'm a sucker for a fast-paced screwball romantic comedy, and this is a classic that is just totally up my alley. I love the simple touches, like the the separation of the two of them through a bedsheet hanging in the hotel room, um, and the way they begin to develop their attraction through their need to um, deceive other people so th- nobody knows the true identity of her. And yet, because it's Frank Capra, there's a hint of darkness underneath a little bit here and there. Uncertain if they're going to wind up together. But it's funny how a lot of these comedies of this era start out with an heiress expressing the desire to break free from inheritance and arranged marriages. And so we end up rooting for their need to find purity and genuine affection. Oh my God, I love Clark Gable. So, the Donner Party. That's a completely different... um, flip side to uh, something like it happened one night but it's a pbs produced documentary that really got under my skin it's a nice real life parallel to meek's cutoff as most documentaries go i don't think this is one that you want to add to your cue patrick because um you know it, it's it's kind of standard in the way it presents itself uh but i love you know the fact that they incorporate old photographs and uh and voiceover but there's something about hearing words spoken from old journals alongside score excerpts from angelo battlemente and harold budd that made this horrific story seem more haunting than most um, PBS produced documentaries. I don't. I wouldn't say it's groundbreaking, but it's one of the most incredible stories Ding. of survival that I've ever heard. Um, a Most Wanted Man, which is, I caught a sneak peek of this, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman's final on-screen performance. Um, unless, I, I'm not sure if he's in the new Hunger Games, or in the last Hunger Games, but it's directed by Anton Corbin, and it's a John Le Carre, I believe, adaptation. 
And much like The American and Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, it's kind of a clinical film that I thought was very cold and detached, a little unengaging for me to fully embrace it wholeheartedly. But again, it's it's got a killer uh, procedural element going on with um, German anti-terror intelligence agents you know, coming in and trying to figure out what's going on. I like the p- political procedural tones. Um, and in the midst of what's going on in the Ukraine, it's kind of timely. So it's, it's good, good, but not great. Um, and last but not least, uh, it's a short film that I sent to you, Patrick, that really fucked me up. It's called Outer Space by Peter Shurkowski. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but I believe he does like these really insane experimental films. And this kind of had like a, an Eraserhead-esque quality. Uh, but it's more like a hall of mirrors that could potentially give someone a seizure. <laughs> but I just found it really anxiety-inducing. It's this weird portrait of subjective schizophrenia that was kind of like just doused in this paranoia. And the super like imposing is this constant effect with lights flickering over images moving across the screen. And uh, I believe it's Barbara Hershey's face, and like she's freaking out. And it's a really incredibly interesting Ding. experiment that I found to be eerie and effective. And that is all. <laughs> My God, I can't believe Jim, I did that. Jesus. Hey, Regina, I'm sorry. I didn't. That whole time, <laughs> oh, I didn't hear a word you said. Regina and I were picking up the glass. Oh boy. Shattered glass. Yeah. Oh. I don't think I'm bleeding too bad, so we're all Oh right. no. <laughs> what was your favorite of those twelve uh would it be pickpockets or I think so. Yeah. I fell head over heels with everything in that movie. Yeah. Uh God that in the that heartbreaking final shot in the prison. Like, good God. But I mean like just I've never seen like an action set piece done like that to where I want to like laugh because it's just so like at the same time, like how can these people not realize they're being pickpocketed, but he manages to pull it off so tightly and very, very well done. I can't, I can't get over how amazed I am by Brisson. I want to see more of his movies after that. We had a, what was the episode where our guest talked about pickpocket? Was it Michelle Gondry? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we talked about uh, pickpocket because I had just I had seen it fairly recently, and they saw it in a Brisson retrospective. Oh yeah, I'd kill to see this on the big screen. Really cool sound design too. It's funny, I, mean, I don't remember the ending at all. So you're talking about this heartbreaking final shot, and I have no memory of it. Yeah, I mean it's sort of a, like a you know realization that he is who he is, and I'm, I'm I, it's it's tough to say if he's going to wind up with the one he loves or not, or if he's going to be in prison forever, and it's just them like kind of embracing but not fully obviously because they have prison bars in between them but um yeah i just i don't know everything about it really really moved me a lot um did you ever watch outer space because that was no i gotta see that still i remember i I only remembered you sent it to me you said you sent it to me and then i saw it but i was i think i was at work or something so i didn't have a chance to see it and then it was just one of those things i never got a chance to see it so because i know you're huge in experimental short films and whatnot so a little bit i I highly recommend that based on mike d'angelo's praise of it oh yeah so yeah is that a new film or no it's 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 old i want to say it's from like the late 90s maybe okay you know check that out yeah Uh, i could see i could see like 
the moment it was over, I was like, well, i got to make sure Zach Batante has seen this, because he's the biggest David Lynch fan. And oh, yeah. he said, oh, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> sure. It, it reminds me a little bit, obviously, it's not in the same style or execution at all of um, It's Such a Beautiful Day, but it gave me that same sort of, like, uneasy anxiety during that parts of It's Such a Beautiful Day made me feel... But yeah, I, uh, I'm just curious to see what you're going to think of that one. Don't, sure. don't watch it when you're in a bummer mood. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll have to check that out. Um, is it a narrative film at all, or is it completely no, 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 non-narrative? No. Non-narrative. It's like, because like, like, Eraserhead I consider like a narrative film. Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly. I mean, I don't think it has the point A to point B structure at all. It's, it's capturing a feeling instead of creating a story. Okay. Um, but I mean, sort of up to your interpretation. I think if sure. it's like it's it is you know following some sort of narrative. But yeah, I I thought it was great. Um, oh. And like I said, I there's something about uh, that director who did the American and that uh, the author John Lacar or is that Lacar or Lacar? Um, I think it's Lacar. Okay. Yeah, Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Like both movies. Like I feel like I should love them, but there's something that leaves me on the outside looking in with both of those movies. Like I feel, I wouldn't say that neither are style over substance, but have I, you seen this? Have you seen the Spy who came in from the cold yet? No, I, I felt the same way about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and uh, Spy who came in the cold is really good. I would ha- ha- heartily recommend that film. That's a film. Okay. It's Richard Burton. It's like from the early '60s. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, I, I it's definitely easier to follow. Yeah, no, I, I mean it's a most wanted man is definitely worth seeing for obviously Phil Seymour Hoffman and some interesting parallels in terms of how uh, governments try to track down terrorists and stuff. And it's it's interesting. It's it, it's it's just shows a lot of. A lot of talking, and it doesn't have, like, this throttling suspense that, you know, you would hope for in terms of, like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? But in terms of a procedural and things like surveillance and, you know, guys sitting in a room trying to figure shit out, it's, 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 it's worth seeing. I just, again, it's not something, like, I, w- I loved as much as I hoped for anyway. Sure. Yeah. So, Patrick, But, but you I'm love excited. Snowpiercer, right? Oh God, yeah! I love Snowpiercer too. I saw that recent. I saw that recently at the music yeah. box. It's tough because, like, I mean, Eric and I did our our best of the year so far, and um, it's 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 kind of already changed. I think I'm I'm more inclined to choose a personal choice, like like the like number one and number two. I you know there's reasons why I love those movies so much, and a lot of it is personal um, and. I, I understand where people might be saying. I even listened to the Row Three Cinecast review of Life itself, saying it's a pretty ordinary documentary. It's just that people are elevating it because of the guy and the subject matter, um, you know. And I, I can understand that argument, I, but I can't deny my emotional response to, to that movie. Um, and then the Lion's Mouth opens, which is a short film that I hope people get to see. I hope it even just, even if it just gets releases released on Vimeo. Um, it's really powerful stuff, but yeah, Snowpiercer and um, also that Polish film Ida are now in my top five of the year so far. 
Yeah, Snowpiercer just felt like an it was like an antidote to every bad Hollywood movie I had seen in the past like ten years. Yeah, like I'm. I it's funny. Like while watching Snowpiercer, I'm like, oh, now I can understand Patrick's argument for what went wrong in Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I, mean, yeah, I was, I was watching. No bull- I felt that way. There's no bullshit uh, in Snowpiercer. Um, mm-hmm. It's just really good storytelling with really good characters. It's interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to co- I'm excited to cover that director in the future. I'm a huge fan of his earlier work too. Yeah, I saw the host like when it first came to DVD a long time ago, and I have I've like no memory of it. Well, memories of murder and mother. Are yeah, quite I, good. I haven't seen those. Yeah, I have, I've certainly heard of memories of murder. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, those are also really good murder mystery procedurals, too. So, I have a feeling that you saw something that I'm not going to be able to see for another couple weeks. Yeah, I saw Boyhood. Lucky fuck. Yeah, I am a lucky fuck. It's it's fucking great. And it's especially seeing it, you know, relatively shortly after our Link Letter episode, and just having all of those thoughts left in my head, you know, of like yeah, what Link Letter is about. Like Boyhood is so what Linkletter is about, and it's, it's. So I guess I guess I mean everyone knows what Boyhood is um, at this point. Uh, I guess I should really just talk about sort of the things about it that surprised me, which was that it was so not story driven. Like there hmm. is a broad kind of narrative of oh this is. You know, for a while we weren't close to my dad, and then he moved close by, and then he was there, and my relationship with my dad progressed as so. And then for a while there, my mom was dating a guy, and then she got married, and then that ended badly, and then, you know, she was single for a while. Like, there's broad narratives, you know, of the way people's lives have kind of broad narratives, but there is no one running narrative that connects it all. It's pretty much all banking on the fact that you will find someone aging and uh, and sort of all of the real life big events that happen to them as, you know, like the, the things that happen from the years 2002 to 2014, like Harry Potter book release or the Iraq war or stuff like that, like, or, you know, the Obama uh, campaign that one of my favorite scenes in the movie is their uh, their liberal uh, you know dad they're uh, both uh, the main character Mason and his sister played by Richard Linkletter's daughter they're driving around with their dad uh, asking you know going door to door asking if they can put up Obama signs and stuff and like the one person they meet is this old guy who's just like who is just having none of it and he's, he's like do I look like a supporter of Barack Hussein Obama and it's hilarious. <laughs> and then the next person you see them meet is like this mom who's like, "Oh yeah, you know, I just love Obama. I think he's so handsome." But like, she's just like getting really weird and kind of almost like creepy, <laughs> you know, like the way like some people like really like put way too much hope into Obama and were just sort of talking about him like he was a prophet or something. Um, like it covers both sides of that really well. And knowing that it was shot at that time, it's not like a retrospective sort of satire. It was. It's just sort of what he felt at the time and that's when he decided to shoot it like a lot of it feels really smart Uh, a lot of the choices he chooses to date certain things feel really smart like uh, okay for example like uh, he goes camping with his dad 
and you know the the film's very impressionistic. You just get little bits and pieces of different scenes, and among the things they talk about at the campfire, like one little you know uh, like thirty second snippet is them just talking about. Would you like? It's clearly right after Revenge of the Sith, the last uh, Star Wars movie came out. Mm-hmm. And then, and the dad's like, "So, do you think they're going to make any more Star Wars movies?" And of course, there's a big laugh in the theater because now that's the big story: is that you know Disney's making all these Star Wars movies. But at the time, Linkletter didn't know that. At the time, Linkletter was just sort of banking on the fact that, of course, more Star Wars movies will eventually get made, and eventually, someone saying that will be funny. You know, like right. he he sort of <laughs> he's sort of banking on a dramatic irony that didn't yet exist when he made the film. And that ha- and a couple things like that happen, um, kind of like a cinematic Nostradamus. Yeah, well, I mean, but again, it's not. You don't have to be a Nostradamus to predict that more Star Wars movies will happen. Like that's that's the smartness of it. And he'll do things that he just like he'll film certain events. Like the like you can tell when just the film stock suddenly kind of looks worse, and it kind of looks more like just the way it's shot and everything. It kind of looks like a documentary. And that's the sequence in which they're the book release of like the sixth Harry Potter book or something like that, and they're hmm. they're at one of those big events outside of a bookstore. Everyone's lining up, and there's all these you know contests going on. Everyone's dressed up, and you know Mason's dressed up as Harry Potter, and it's really cute. And it's just one of those things where it's like he just took advantage of. All right, this is a twelve year project. Here are the things that I can do over the course of these twelve years that will make this more meaningful, and. So even if you don't care about the character of Mason, who is a good character and he and the actor's really good, that was another lucky break he got was that <laughs> that the kid he chose when the kid was six years old turned out to be a good actor when he like sometimes sometime around when the when Mason hits puberty like he becomes a really good actor <laughs> and yeah, good thing Richard Linklater didn't choose uh, Justin Bieber or something to follow for yeah years. well I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have gone to Canada to. No, <laughs> like the whole thing takes place in Texas, but no, exactly. But you know what I mean. Like it's uh, even if you don't follow, even if the lack of story bums you out, like just watching it, you can just get lost in the time capsule of like, oh yeah, that is what the last twelve years were kind of like. But in none of it is. I mean, it's more in the foreground than something like, say, Mad Men, where sometimes historical events come in, but they never dictate how things go. Like there, some of the song choices and stuff, you feel a little more like, okay, it's he's definitely trying to establish that the year is 2002 because Coldplay's Yellow is playing, you know, and like, okay, he's hitting the songs, the big touchstone songs of the time. Um, and it, it he, it, if I had like one complaint about the movie, it's he leans on that a little bit too hard. Um, yeah, I can imagine that, but then again, that's probably what I don't know. Maybe a, a kid that age. Would probably be listening to, you know, pop music on the radio. It feels it doesn't like seeking out indie bands. It doesn't. Stuff, it doesn't feel know? like a subjective movie like that, though. It feels like an objective oh, okay. movie. Uh, like it doesn't. It doesn't feel like oh, you, well, you have to make that choice because that's what a twelve-year-old would do. It feels because you're not just following Mason. I'm assuming like you learn about the parents. Yeah, I mean too. everything's mostly through his eyes. But when you're you know when you're eight, like everything you are is just your house. And your family, and sometimes you get to go out and hang out with your friends, but most of the time you're sitting around your house with your mom and stuff. So it it isn't really until, like, he gets to be the age where he can drive and stuff that he sort of develops his own story outside of the family. Um, But anyway, what I was saying was it's – as just a time capsule, it has value. But then in in addition to that, the fact that 
there is no cause and effect that's motivating the story. Like, you know, most movies happen. They happen over a shorter period of time, and they just happen like this happens, therefore this happens, therefore this happens, therefore that. You know, like they're just sort of go with a cause and effect. And the previous scene um, dictates what happens in the next scene. And because that's not the case, it act. It, one of the most fascinating things for me about Boyhood was it simulates what it is like to be a kid and just to have no agency. And just to be like, you know, like when I look back at my life, I'm like, well, I lived in Houston. And then instead of going to the middle school that all of my friends went to, I went to the Gifted and Talents program cause in a different middle school. And I had to make all new friends because that was what my parents chose. And then the summer before eighth grade, instead of graduating eighth grade with all my friends, I had to move to, you know, I had to move to Illinois because that was what my parents chose. And then... You know, I graduated eighth grade, and instead of going to the high school I wanted to, which was the public school where all my friends would be, I had to go to this, uh, you know, the the Catholic school, and that was what my parents chose. Like, there is just this sort of feeling that you're being swept along, and you don't have agency as a as a as a as a person, and that is kind of the case until you are 16 and you have a car and stuff, and so it actually. Even though the movie, I don't think, is a totally subjective experience, it does subjectively sort of capture that feeling really well just in its structure. Um, just in, like, you know, the early the early signs that, uh-oh, maybe this new stepdad, there's trouble here. Like, just the earliest signs of that, you, there's no recourse because you're following mm-hmm. Mason. You're not following his mom. So it's not a drama about his mom and what she has to do about her, you know, potentially uh, – problematic you know new husband it's about mason and he has no opt and you know he he has no say in the matter um so like yeah it, it ends up being the structure ends up really working well to the movie's advantage um much more so than if they like tried to like say if it was about a kid um learning guitar and he gets his first guitar when he's six or whatever and he doesn't care and it's just sort of about the arc he has with his guitar and they filmed it the same way like if they made it more specific, I think it would have lost mm-hmm. a lot of that because suddenly you wouldn't be swept along with the time. You would have something to follow the whole way through. Um, and instead, Linkletter just focuses on these tiny impressionistic moments that are clearly important moments, but they're not the, they're not graduation. They're not. There's only one birthday scene in the whole movie. That's that's what I can say about the restraint of this movie. Is like the easiest. Oh, that's great. Like you know, the easiest way anyone else in the world like would have made this movie is well, we have an easy way to mark time, which is the birthday cake right. has seven candles. Birthdays. The birthday cake has eight candles. The birthday cake has a number ten on it. You know, like and but there's only one scene, and I think he's like when he turns fifteen. That's the one birthday we get to see, and it's because it's like a important birthday, and not because. Like of of his age, but just because of the specific events surrounding that birthday and stuff like that, and you know, Linkletter at this point, I'm sure he's in his late forties or mid forties or something, but he's very he is very good at not necessarily imposing. Like he's very good at capturing childhood in the new millennium, and just like realizing that, like, oh yeah, cell phones and technology are a big part of it, and it's not like a joke that it's just like, oh, look at how our cell phones used to look. It's that an important scene with his father will happen over FaceTime on an iPhone at a certain period of time because that's just what happens now, you know, especially if you have it, you know, that's that's what, you know, that's how Before Midnight starts is Ethan right. Hawke talking to his kid about, like, chatting over webcam and stuff like that. Like, and it's not, 
it's not introduced like ha ha here comes to here comes the iPhone. It's just one of those things that happens. Um, so it feels very organic in that. Yeah, and, and it feels very I, modern. It feels like he was a the whole twelve years he was making it. He's a very sharp observer of the times. One of my favorite details about this movie is that Mason uh, has sort of a traumatic. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything, but he has kind of a traumatic experience uh, involving a, a, a physical change made to him that he doesn't have a say in the matter over. Um, and then Mason uh, sort of uh, actually, when he becomes a teenager, he ends up sort of experimenting with sort of his gender expression. Like he's a straight guy. Like there's no there's no question in the movie he plays a straight guy. But like at a certain point, he gets earrings. At a certain point, like you know, he comes home and he has nail polish on. And that feels to me like a very modern sort of a thing, like a very modern observation about like what would make a new kind of, I don't know if even someone's Mason age is still considered a millennial. I don't know what the cutoff is of that, but like that feels like a very, a lot of my friends did that. My, a lot of my, a lot of friends did that when they were in high school and went through a goth phase. Yeah. But it's not a goth. It's not, it's not sort of, uh, Expressed through like a goth thing or anything like that. It's expressed more right. like through gender, um, and that to me that's is a cool. that's a very modern sort of thing to happen. Sure. And like, so yeah, like Richard Linklater just did this right, and it's. I mean, there's so many ways this movie could have gone wrong. Like even as far as like shit, he had to because it started in 2002, right? This whole project, he had to have been shooting it on film because digital cameras didn't look that good in 2002, right? Right. Well. N- Enter 2013, like, or 2014 or whatever, like, digital, like, film is rare, and everything's on digital. And it's possible mm-hmm. at some point he made a switch digital, but I couldn't detect it. It looked like it was shot all on, you know, one the same camera, same crew, the same style. You know, he, he had to make a aesthetic choices, you know, early on, and he had to stick to that if the movie was going to feel coherent. You know, because the movie isn't episodic. It's not like every year he tries a different thing or whatever. It it just kind of blends together. Like it, there's a very long period of time where you're not sure how old he is, and then at a certain point, like you just sort of gander. Oh yeah, okay, so this is middle school, so he must be 13 or 14. But like because before pu- puberty, you don't necessarily physically age very much. You know, you don't. Mm-hmm. You like you can't tell necessarily when one year starts and the other begins, other than you know signifiers of the era such as again the obama campaign and the iraq war and stuff like that so i would assume that richard linkletter gets a shot of you know him growing pubes yeah no there's a time lapse i mean that was the one controversial part of boyhood is the time lapse uh montage of his of his pubes growing in real time yep that's what i thought where you you see yeah you see like uh three years of pubes grow over the course of uh 30 minutes (laughs) (laughs) but i think it really worked personally because i mean that's that's the most important thing so yeah like does he yeah does he do the the because one of my favorite things about richard linkletter is you know his ability to capture this you know uh, not necessarily always philosophical but just he's he's mastered the art of conversation oh yeah Amongst people and like long-winded conversation oh, yeah. that's never dull. But importantly, but importantly, again, importantly, this really only happens once he be- Mason becomes a teenager, and he starts sure. like uh, in Mike D'Angelo's review on uh, on Letterboxd, he says this. And I think it's really true. He says that by the end of the movie, Mason could just walk onto the set of Slacker and be a character in that movie. <laughs> and like so pointedly. 
the conversations that are happening, you know, when he's eight or whatever with his dad, like his dad's doing most of the talking. Cause when you're a little kid, you don't talk much. You're, you just get talked to, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Ethan Hawke is great in this movie, by the way, Ethan Hawke's great in all of Linkletter's movies. I don't know what it is that Linkletter yeah. does differently. Cause Ethan Hawke's I know, right? generally not great, but he is so present and he is such a great, like he's a bad stepfather in a lot of ways. And he's a good stepfather in a lot of ways. And he's such just a real flawed person. And it's not like, He's a good father, but he gets drunk, and it's not like an obvious sort of barrier to overcome. He's just not a successful person, and he can't really support them financially, even when they absolutely need to be supported financially, you know what I mean, like, during certain times. And so Ethan Hawke is great, so he has some great speeches. At one point, a gift he gives uh, Mason is he calls it the Black Album, and he made Mason a mix of all the best uh, Beatles solo songs. And he has this. Aww. And he has this great speech about like how what a drag it can be to be a Beatles fan trying to wade through all their solo work. But at certain points, <laughs> you kind of feel that Beatles feeling. And he's like, "So I made this, and it's basically." And he has this, you know, long speech about making a mixtape and everything like that. And it's and again, Mason's like fourteen at this point or something like that. So Mason's just sort of a teenager, and he's sort of yeah, whatever. He's not saying anything, but just the but it's because of the structure of the movie. Just the fact that that scene is included in its entirety means that mixtape had to be important to Mason. You know, like like these are yeah, no, totally. Like in any other movie, you would roll your eyes at that, but you know, to sort of just like highlight, oh, yeah. this is you know, uh, the a bond that. We, it has to happen because that's you know it's almost in every movie at some point like even in fucking no strings attached like uh, um, Ashton Kutcher makes a mixtape for Natalie Portman but for for something like this yeah well it's I mean, not obviously would, it, I mean obviously one of the big differences is not a romance but also it's just um, not it doesn't serve a narrative function mm-hmm. yeah that's that's what I'm trying to say yeah because I mean that's something that a dad would do yeah. for for his son. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I have a feeling that this—it's probably going to hit me pretty hardcore. I just have this feeling, like, because I imagine maybe not everything that happens to Mason you can necessarily relate to or identify with, but it must invoke particular memories or taking you back to a particular time and place. Yeah, it wasn't like I mean, as a reference point. Yeah, Mason's life was not really like my life in a lot of important ways. Like when I think about the things that define my childhood, I, I see very little of that in boyhood but uh, that's to me the ultimate success of boyhood is that you don't need to just watching someone grow up over the course of you know two hours 45 minutes or whatever like like that fast it you get so connected to this person (laughs) you know like oh yeah i think about like when i was looking up you know the actor who played mason like when i was looking him up now i'm like i'm so proud of him he started off as this child actor, and look at him, he's doing really cool stuff. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I felt like his mom, you know? Like, it's, it, I imagine that's got to happen with the 7-Up series. Yeah, I haven't watched any of the 7-Up series, so I couldn't t- speak on that. It's, uh, and again, the Before series is more specific, and it's, it's more about these two characters, and each specific film has its own plot, you know? Sure. its own premise uh, even even before sunrise which is probably the loosest of all the three like it has it's a very specific thing whereas boyhood feels a little more amorphous and the fact that that's to its benefit is just it's just like an example of how Linkletter makes all the right choices I, I loved boyhood a lot it's easily my favorite movie of the year so far 
Um, I wouldn't say... Yeah, that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people except Eric Childress, apparently. Yeah, well, Eric Childress wants everything to be an 80s kids movie, basically. (laughs) What's his one of his Lego movies, like his second best movie of the year? Like, all right. It was fun. But, yeah, I I definitely don't see the... The, the praise that he had for that is because I was like, yeah, it's fine. And it's a funny movie. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to enjoy yeah. it. And then it, look, obviously like what happens at the end, you know, I can understand. It's not as, why. it's not as good as that movie. He doesn't like 21 jump street by the same directors, but <laughs> it's good. Oh yeah. I think it's just, that's all. That's going to be like the ultimate rival from here on out, What's that? which is fine. Just you and Eric always disagree. Always butting heads. That's fine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm gonna see Boyhood on August fifteenth. Yeah, so probably maybe for the next episode we'll see, but I'm couldn't be more excited to see it. That's oh, gonna be great because uh, everything. Uh, I pretty much I'm pretty much on board for what Richard Linkletter brings to the table every time. Yeah, and that is the funny thing. This was mentioned, I think, on the Vim Vendors episode. Um, by our guests that it was like the whole period of Linkletter's career when everyone was shit talking him and saying his, he was over he was making this <laughs> you know yeah right <laughs> like he was making Bad News Bears but he was also making this he's making School of Rock but he's also making this well School of Rock's good but uh, being Orson Welles or me and Orson Welles or whatever that was the one that everyone else was shit talking oh yeah well that and yeah Bad News Bears and stuff but right he was making his own masterpiece at the same time. It's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh... I think we're ready. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Hold on. Let me see if there's... Let me just do a quick check. Oh, yeah. Everyone, uh, go on to uh, Netflix Instant, and next time you're like, I don't know what I want to watch. Watch Bright Leaves. Have you ever seen this, Jim? No, but it's interesting because I tried downloading um, this director's most recent documentary, Photographic Memory, because I'm kind of a buff for father-son relationships and it's about memory and it's about technology so i was like i gotta see this but uh it turned out to be the wrong file so i'm not happy and i need to uncover it but what's uh what's bright leaves Leaves is it's sort of a movie about north carolina and its relationship to the tobacco industry but the way uh oh really but Hmm. the way ross uh uh and sort of his own personal history in North Carolina and finding out like his great grandfather was one of the biggest tobacco farmers before he got, uh, you know, before he, his recipe got stolen by Duke, uh, the, the Duke <laughs> family who runs most of tobacco growing now. And like that's, they started Duke university. Like that's where they are. So it, it's sort of about that, but it's mostly just fascinating because it's made of all the parts uh, that other documentaries would go away. Like, there's no interviews with legislators, no interviews with, like, big to- tobacco executives or anything like that. Like, he's putting himself in the story the same way, like, Roger Moore put himself in the story in, like, Bowling for Columbine or Roger and Me and stuff like that. It's more like Roger and Me than anything, uh, since it's, you know, about his personal hometown and stuff like that. Not Roger Moore. Hmm. Not Roger Moore. Michael Moore. <laughs> Remember that Roger Moore movie, that Roger and Me, in which Roger Moore took on the, the automotive industry? <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah. He took a, he took them on with a license to kill. Good stuff. Um, yes, but it's just him <laughs> fucking up the whole time. Like there are like, like at one point he like interviews this film theorist 
because there is a Gary Cooper movie based on his grand, great grand that he believes is great based on his great grandfather's life, and the oh, film really? theorist just sort of hijacks the movie for a little bit and like designs these <laughs> shots in which he should be interviewed in and like starts rambling about his theory of cinekineticism and stuff like the movie is just like it has so much personality because it's just made up of Ross McElwee kind of going like yeah I don't really know what I was doing like I think I'm doing this but then it kind of ended up being this other weird thing and oh so good and it's yeah so it's I love that when that happens in a documentary yeah. where it starts out as one thing and becomes another as they're filming and it, it. It, apparently uh, Sherman's March his first big movie from like the late 80s uh, in which he tried oh, yeah, to like cover the the General Sherman's sort of march to the south. Like apparently that has a similar structure where he just keeps getting sidetracked. Um, it's almost like a Tristram Shandy sort of a thing where he never gets to the story of his him being born because he keeps getting sidetracked. It's like that. It's really delightful. It's really funny, and it's just a great example of a very a, a documentary really done well um, and very cinematic. And like, there's no way this. This could be anything other than a documentary. This could not be a nonfiction book, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Sweet. And I, I know you can be uh, uber critical on, on documentaries, and in terms of them not being only lazy, only like done only well. shitty ones. Like I mean, it's like I talked about like the last episode. Like if you just if people don't care about the movie they're making, then they're going to make a bad movie. And the thing about documentaries is people have just had their standards lowered from television. I really believe that. It's a, it's a, it's well, a, it's I mean, a line I, I, I steal from Woody Allen all the time in Manhattan where it's like, of course these people are laughing. Uh, They've had their standards systematically lowered by television, but I think it's true. I think people don't care. I think people just want to put on a Netflix documentary and they want to feel like they've learned something. And I think that for them it's easier than reading a book. And Well, if you have an avid interest in the subject matter, um, I mean, sometimes I think people are willing to yeah, overlook. Yeah, but that doesn't like, make it a good movie. You know, that just means you have an avid interest in the subject matter. Like, yeah. I mean, I love I the subject that, matter in The Punk Singer, but I think that movie's really bad. Yeah. Really? Like, that was mm. that's another movie everyone gave a pass because it has... because it's about Bikini Kill and Bikini Kill's the greatest and it's about Kathleen Hanna and Kathleen Hanna's the greatest, but that movie is not the greatest. That movie's garbage. Well, not garbage, yeah, I kind but. of felt that way because I, I, I obviously am a huge fan of Bill Hicks and that Bill Hicks documentary. Oh, that Bill Hicks documentary. That really, is garbage. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I felt that as I was watching. I'm like, as much as I love Bill Hicks, this actually is horribly yeah. done. So I, I'm, I'll, I'll, check, I'll definitely check out Bright Leaves. It sounds yep. totally cool. Well, let's do this, Patrick. Yeah? You want to talk about the director of the we episode? Got, we yeah, we got a really great, fast-paced, exciting director to talk about for this particular episode. It is Kelly Reichart. Is yeah, it, right? it is Reichart, because that's how you sing it in your song. That's about to play right now. Movies, 
okay. Mark and Kurt will talk another day. Will the Indian lead them astray? Meet you fucker, don't get angry. We're talking Kelly Ricard. We still need to see night moves. She hasn't made a lot of movies, but they're all damn cool. You want to talk about Kelly Riker, Jim? I do. This is uh, she's she's the director of the episode. I'm sad that she's... we don't have a guest, but I think we can handle this. No, we. In fact, I think we should just go ahead and um, talk about all three. Yeah, uh, movies that we've seen. I mean, technically, I saw Travis as well. Her short, her short sort of experimental film. Oh, really? Okay. But it's it. There's not much to it. It's uh, it's clips of a NPR interview with a mom who lost a son in Iraq, hmm. um, with sort of shifting colors that it almost looks like out of focus eight millimeter footage. Which then oh, later okay. during the credits, I realized, oh, it had to have been because there was an eight millimeter post production team that was thanked or credited or whatever. So, but like, it's it's experimental. So I don't know what you're going to get out of that. There's no narrative. There's no. I couldn't tell you much about it. Um, and it doesn't really have anything to do with her features, so um, that I could detect at any rate. Yeah, so it's interesting because um, Travis, much like um, another director, I really, really, really love Mark Romanek. Like he made a mo- one movie in 1985, and then it took him like I don't know 12 years or something to make another movie. Uh, and I really wanted to try and track down. Um, Kelly Reichardt's first film, River of Grass, because it sounds really good and it was critically acclaimed at the time of its release, but uh, kind of hard to find. Um, and of course, her latest film, Night Moves, which has gotten a lot of great reviews, and didn't open up around here. And I don't yeah. think uh, I mean it's it might have opened up in Chicago for like a week. It, or two, it was but. it was in it was in Chicago for at least a week. Um, and I had planned to see it, and then unfortunately I couldn't see it. And it, right now it's in that unfortunate period where it's in between VOD and yeah. theaters. So, but once we uh, see it, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Oh yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, I I I really grew to because I liked Meek's Cutoff. Um, I like me I like Meek's Cutoff quite a bit. Um, in 2011 when it came out. Oh yeah, but um, but after seeing Wendy and Lucy, I sort of. Uh, got more what Kelly Reichard was about, mm-hmm. and then want rewatching Meek's Cutoff uh, after seeing Wendy and Lucy. I, I think I, I enjoyed it more, and I I adore Wendy and Lucy. Um, I'm happy to hear that. Um, sure, but but we we might as well start with Old Joy. I don't imagine we'll have as much to say about it, even though mm-hmm. that's the movie that we disagree on. I believe. Um. Yeah. It's. I still really like it a lot. Uh. But it's definitely my least favorite of the three I've seen, and uh, I, I again, I, it's interesting because when I, I read an article that described her films as being kind of about personal apocalypses, and uh, I find I find pretty much all three of her movies to sort of be complete downers, and sort of like just cutting to the core of reality. In the face of you know personal decay and economic decay, uh, I think her movies are very unsentimental. And the fact, like, she captures these you know three different worlds with 
outcomes that I can kind of, you know, identify with more or less, like the idea of, you know, accepting the fact that despite momentary attraction, some friendships die and they're not meant to continue. Or with the case of Winnie and Lucy, money can keep you from the life that you want to lead. And I will agree, like, there, the, the minimalism of Old Joy is not quite as enveloping as the other two movies. Well, I mean, the thing that I would say dis- distinguishes Old Joy from the other two is that there isn't that incredible tension. Like, you know, you can, you know, I, when I, I never saw Wendy and Lucy when it came out because people just described it as, people did it a disservice when they just described it as, oh, yeah, it's a movie about a woman wandering around Oregon looking for her dog. And I was like, oh, it sounds like a weird experimental thing that's not engaging. But actually, it's a very straightforward story, and it has a very straightforward drive, which is this this ticking clock, this sort of ongoing pressure, you know? And mm-hmm. obviously, Meek's cutoff, that's even more pointed uh, with the fact that, you know, they're they're running out of water, like, you know? And Old Joy doesn't really have that, like, mounting pressure. No, there's def- definitely a moment of tension when he's giving them the massage and stuff and you know like I I can understand that in context of like you know having a really strong friendship and you know sort of being torn conflicted about your feelings about it and th- I, I mean I definitely the, the thing where we kind of have a you know uh, a disconnect with or in terms of like I just I love nature. I love hanging out and, you know, sort of reconnecting, uh, you know, walking along nature trails and stuff like that. And, you know, there was a time in my life where I found that very comforting uh, just to to hang out with a friend and, you know, go into that type of environment and sort of seclude ourselves. And, you know, I will say that, like, I'm not as emotionally invested in the outcome of what happens on their trip. But there are certain... I, I think it's just Reichardt's style with being very meditative and um, simple and just letting letting her movies breathe the way she does. Because, um, I mean, I I know there's, a, there's another word I'm looking for that's not... I don't want to just label it as her movies are very minimalist and that's that. Um, and it's not simplified. I, I'll think of the word soon enough. It's just something that like occurred to me as I'm watching all three of her movies and like how subdued they are but yet at the same time they're they're really about internal struggle in in different ways and i i will say that it's not as palpable um and immediate in old joy as it is in her other two films but i think just because i find her style so incredible and just again much like a filmmaker like david gordon green who you know he he definitely has his whimsy and he 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 has a, a more absurdist tone at times just the fact that he like creates these lived-in environments for their characters to just sort of roam, I, I love that approach in a movie. Um, but yeah, I, I I will say that like I don't I'm not as overly passionate about Old Joy as I am about the other two. I I mean obviously there's a lot about Old Joy I respect. I I you you know you said the word you're looking for is not simple, but I do think that is a virtue in both Old Joy and Wendy and Lucy is that they're very short movies and they're about very simple things and they just allow themselves to be that. Sure. Um, and to be that small and specific. And I like that Old Joy doesn't have high stakes. I like that there's no dark secret that comes to light, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, 
that's what you come to expect. And sure. you know, she subverts that pretty much with every movie. I, I mean, think. if I if I was going to say the the general narrative of old of old joy, you know, I like that better when it was done in like Hump Day. I say like they have very similar storylines of mm-hmm. like two friends who have split paths and one is the is the more wilder, less tamed down, sort of uh less stable, you know, less uh economically uh you know, stable and stuff and the other has sort of settled down and, you know, entered a middle-class lifestyle and their attempts to reconnect sort of both broadcast to each other uh, how different they are and sort of the path not taken. And I would say, like, something like Hump Day I find more engaging just because it's a comedy, you know? It's just, like, jokes. (laughs) Like, if if I'm laughing during a movie, that means I'm enjoying myself, you know? Sure. Um, and And I can forgive a lot and I... I mean, not that there's any, not that a hump day has you need to forgive a lot, but um, whereas Old Joy is obviously not a comedy, um, but I do like that it can be that small and that it isn't, it doesn't have a high concept like Hump Day. It doesn't have a big dark secret. It doesn't have an explosive moment where they get into a fight. It just sort of the tension comes from the lack of connection, and you know, and that can be. Uh, and that and that can be you know from time to time in Old Joy very moving. I just the I mean number one like they're already I, and it, yeah the, you like nature and I hate nature. Like to me <laughs> to me nature is Meek's cutoff is is how is is a great example of uh... what nature is to me because Meek's cutoff treats nature the same way that gravity treats outer space, which is it's this crazy nothingness in which you can just be stranded and die. It's this unforgiving, unwelcoming nothingness. And that's how, and like, you know, like you can, you know, there's certain shots in, in Meek's cutoff that are beautiful, but it's, but the wilderness is not welcoming in Meek's cutoff. Uh, there's, there's no lingering shots on beautiful caterpillars climbing up flowers or any shit like that because the wilderness is killing them. And that's how I feel whenever I'm in the wilderness. I get extremely anxious um, or I get bored and then I get anxious. And so the idea, so you're, if you're starting a movie with the idea of two friends deciding to reconnect over just going camping, mm-hmm. like, like that already is a weird you, you, you prefer the Jerry outcome. Oh, something like that. <laughs> well, no, well, I mean, Jerry's the right approach because Jerry. Why are they there? You, like to see the thing. I actually, I rewatched. Uh, I didn't finish Jerry because it was it was getting late, but uh, I rewatched most of Jerry last night uh, oh, to wow. sort of to sort of see like what what you know what separates Gus Van Zandt from Kelly Reichard. What do they do differently? And the interesting thing about Jerry is like Jerry is kind of surreal. Jerry, they keep calling each other Jerry, and you're not sure if that's like a joke. The same way, like in Annie Hall, uh, you know, Woody Allen and uh, and uh, not not Tony Randall, right? Who's the who's Woody Allen's friend in Annie Hall? Uh, oh man, it's it can't be Tony Randall, is it? Right, it's Tony something though. It's Tony and uh, stalling Curtis? as I Google no. it. <laughs> Tony Roberts. Okay, yes. so in, in any yes. hall, in any hall, you know, Woody Allen and Tony Roberts call each other Max, and it's just this weird inside joke that's never explained because mm-hmm. uh, neither of the characters is called Max, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and in Jerry they call each other Jerry, 
but it doesn't really feel like necessarily an inside joke because they also refer to like a third friend in a story as Jerry. Um, and then they also use Jerry as just like a verb, like, well, we made a bunch of Jerry's there. We Jerry'd that up right there. Like there's weird, yeah, surrealism in Jerry Mm -hmm. and, and there's not like, and part of the fact that they're kind of opaque characters is what makes Jerry so captivating. Um, because it strips away everything that isn't this this story about two admittedly kind of stupid people getting lost in the in the wilderness and dying. Um, and uh, so at, at any rate, um, so yeah, uh, old joy like to me that's already I'm not relating to these characters, which you don't have to relate to the characters necessarily. I've never been in. Uh, Michelle Williams situation, you know, um, but it's, um, so just, uh, it's less engaging to me. Um, though I, I do kind of re- want to rewatch it cause I, I read a lot of interviews and stuff, um, with Kelly Reichert about old joy. And one thing I hadn't considered was like the year it was released, which was the political context a little bit going on. There's, I know at some point it might be at the very beginning where they're, he's listening to like an NPR interview and like there there there's a lot of talk about Kelly Reichardt's sort of political undertones. Yeah, well, it's it's yeah, it's, it's it's Air America. It's very pointedly not NPR. It's like a call-in oh, okay. show. Right, you know? right, okay. And that's yeah, that's like at the beginning and the end. And you know, at the time, not knowing what the movie was, having read nothing about Old Joy, having not known anything about it that opening the movie I just thought that was just like that was what was on the radio and that was supposed to inform like what kind of character he was and I'm like okay he's a liberal and but um Kelly Reichard has said like she views the movie as almost metaphorical as like okay it's two years after Bush was reelected you're like in the thick of the fucking second term Bush and I remember that feeling too like that yeah that low point like that's why, like when Obama came up, people were fucking losing their minds and acting like he was a prophet and just like making him out to be like this this magical man who would who would wish away all of our problems, <laughs> uh, which is clearly not the case. But like you were so down, like when you were in that Bush, that second term Bush era, um, and the idea of these of these two men re- representing like two very different kind of liberals who are kind of lost in the woods. Uh, you know, there's the sign without the markings, and they're sort of not connecting to each other, and they're sort of um, toothless, and they sort of have no purpose, and they're directionless. Like having not really thought about that context watching the movie, I wonder if I rewatched it now if that would mean more to me, or if I had watched it. Well, no, I was gonna say I wonder if I had seen it originally in 2006, that would have meant a lot to me. But when I was in, in 2006, I was a senior in high school, and I didn't like any art movies that weren't at least like half Tarantino. <laughs> you know? Like, oh yeah, well, they had to be I was, faster I, I, I'd be, and... I was just way too dumb to watch something like Old Joy. But I, I do want to rewatch Old Joy, and maybe I'd get more out of it politically. Yeah, kind of, yeah I, I, it's interesting because I mean, I I don't think of that because I'm so focused on just the simplicity of it all, and yeah. you know, on you know the characters where I never really. Obviously, something like Beasts of the Southern Wild, when FEMA comes in, um, you know, I mean, there's clear uh, critiques of how our government handled something like Hurricane Katrina. 
but then you know I read about how you know uh, when or um, Kelly Reichardt making Wendy and Lucy with her um, constant collaborator uh, John Raymond who is a really great author who I I read a couple of his books including um, his short story collection which uh, Wendy and Lucy the story comes from and I'm a huge fan of his writing and it's it's it really complements and by the way he is he's the reason all of her stuff takes place in Portland or is about Portland um, yes. because he lives in Portland so when I, I was researching it I was looking up Kelly Reichert I'm like okay born in Orlando went to college in Boston lives and teaches in New York City and I was like what why why are all your <laughs> movies about Portland like I was so confused but it's her writer it's her writer and apparently like her method is she'll go location scouting because you know all of her movies locations are super important you know very few scenes take place indoors in her movies um you know yeah so she always shoots on location so and she is just used to driving across country because her dog doesn't like to fly lucy her dog oh so apparently she'll like twice a year she'll make the trip from new york to portland city and drive across the country and like with like old joy it was about a certain hot springs so she's like okay well that has to take place there um but but she before she decided that she drove to all of these different hot springs all over the country before she was like oh yeah no I should just do it in Portland obviously because that's where the story took place and then well for, in between River, River of Grass and Old Joy I mean she was almost homeless herself like she was she like she was trying to do a movie at some point after River yeah. of Grass with Jodie Foster but then you know it never happened and she became really disenchanted with the movie industry so like yeah I mean that's she why really she makes her do a whole lot yeah that's why she makes the movies the way she does now is because she doesn't want to involve the film industry, which I think is amazing. I think it's great. And I mean, it's yeah. sad that she can't make a living making movies. She has made no money ever from directing. Like the only way you can get a movie like Meek's cutoff made, like forget about the fact that you're, you know, she's a female director. Forget about the fact that it's a, it's a slow burn movie period piece in which there are no close ups of your star's faces. And there's no dramatic moments. Like, like just, the fact that she even had the artistic, uh, you know, final cut, she had the final say to make the movie in four three in like full frame, mm-hmm. <laughs> like like that is just like a perfect example of like, well, she clearly didn't have any money people around because any money person in two thousand ten would have told her, hey, everybody's TVs are rectangles now, we don't make movies like this. <laughs> what are you doing? And uh, she's talked about that. She'd said in an interview once. She, she was like, I wish. She goes, I don't know why Europeans um, stuck to the rectangle and put that on all of us. I love the square. I wish I could make all movies in the square. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, she's like Kubrick. She was, she's, you know, Kubrick liked to make movies in full frame in the Academy ratio. Yeah, and I actually like Grand Budapest Hotel, even like with its changing mm-hmm. ratio was interesting. But I think, you know, what I was alluding to earlier is the fact that you know I, I don't necessarily like I, I don't look at the macro level because um, I'm, I'm so focused because of the way the story presents itself on specific characters yeah. that's kind of that's kind of what the word too is like her movies are very specific and um, I never like read into but it's it's there because um, Reichardt and John Raymond conceived the story uh, for Wendy and Lucy as a reaction to Hurricane Katrina, which is interesting. Like, I mean, some, like I mentioned, you know, something like Beasts of the Southern Wild. Yeah, it's obvious that there are, you know, 
references to what took place yeah. in our country. But like here, it's it's really just the divide between the rich and the poor. And well, I'm you know I go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say like I feel like I mean we, you know we were talking about I, I, I was talking about boyhood with Richard Linkletter, and I think. If you're a politically active person, and that's just something that's an important part of your daily life, is following the 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 political climate of of the country and stuff like that, or mm-hmm. you know, just the news and politics and all of that. Like I don't, you know, like a lot of these these movies don't feel overtly political because they're not made to like, all right, well, this is going to be a big anti-Katrina movie, and then everyone will know what bullshit Katrina is. It's more just like. That's just how you're feeling at the time because you because that's a very immediate thing. You know, you don't have to think about like this is going to be my critique of X, Y, or Z. You just like you just are reacting to what is happening. Sure, and that's the kind of movie you're going to make. Like when she was talking about Meek's cutoff, she was she was like, you know, she was reading it. She's like, uh, you know, Meek's cutoff, you know, is a very enjoyable movie outside of any political context, but. When she was talking about like the, the the political themes of Meek's Cutoff, she was like, "Oh yeah, a man leads these people into the desert and gets lost, and he doesn't have a plan or an idea, <laughs> and then he comes to rely on the locals who he distrusts." Like, hmm, I wonder why that was relevant to me. Like, you know, like it's clearly a yeah. Your feelings at the time are just going to automatically you know seep into your story, right? And that makes that makes complete sense. Yeah, so like I, I think that's why like you could watch Wendy and Lucy now. And not put your and not have to put yourself in that mindset and still get something out right. of it. Um, before we go and move on to Wendy and Lucy, can I ask you one thing real quick about Old Joy? Mm-hmm. And I think there's an ambiguity here. And I don't. And again, I wasn't really responding to Old Joy on the whole, so I didn't have strong feelings about this. But like, what did you think about the homoerotic content of Old Joy? Well, it's very underplayed and kind of subdued. Yeah, I mean, it kind of like it's. Do you do you think it's only in that scene where he massages him in the tub, and is that even homoerotic at all, or is that just like what what to you was that? Wow, I mean, I kind of thought that maybe there was attraction at some point in their past, and being that close again in that kind of setting brought those feelings back temporarily, but clearly they've moved on from from that. I mean. Well, and I, I mean that's it's hard to say because like I, when that moment happens I am ex- like ready for not something explicit that's not the right term but I'm ex- ready for something external to happen like a reaction a conversation about what just happened um, and the fact that it doesn't again subverts my expectations in an interesting way like it, it, it plays out in my head more in terms of like what do I think yeah um, yeah I, I definitely think that at some point there were feelings beyond friendship um yeah. that were probably never fully realized that's an, i i don't i don't walk away with that but that, that makes a lot of sense and it also it almost makes old joy play off as like a feature-length version of the scene at the end of e2 mama tempion like when they meet up and yeah. there's just that weird disconnect <laughs> and they just ended up in really different places and yeah there's that thing they're not talking about that you know i want to i want to rewatch old joy even more now because i want to see like if in retrospect that thing they're not talking about could be a previous you know like sexual relationship that um one of the things that uh so like Todd Haynes who is the producer of a lot of uh 
you know, a previous person we've covered on this podcast, and he produced. A lot oh of- yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, Kelly Reichardt's. Uh, I think it's an AV Club article that she wrote about Safe. Oh really? So yeah, it's oh, I gotta great. check that out. Well, she would well like Todd Haynes produced a lot of her movies, and she said like Todd Haynes introduced her to Portland, and she was like, and I had trouble like when I was there, I could never say like. I could never like see a stranger or at a bar or whatever and just be like, oh yeah, that person's gay or that person's straight, because the vibe was always like, no, it's not like that here. <laughs> like the vibe was like right. things were just more fluid than that in Portland, um, and that was something like she had to get used to, and that was sort of the way she responded to the homoerotic content in Old Joy, which was just like that's that was my t- that was one of the things I took away from my first visits to Portland and stuff. Um. Interesting. So apparently, yeah. apparently, her co-writer, uh, what was his name, John Raymond. John yeah. John Raymond worked on Poison, the Todd Haynes movie. Oh, so that's where okay. that like connection is. Hmm. So that's cool. And also, if you can find it, uh, just Google Gus Van Zant, Kelly Reichard. There's an amazing piece in which Kelly Reichard and Gus Van Zant sort of interview each other. Jeez, uh, like both of those filmmakers, I could see why, like. Yeah, there's there's interesting correlations going on. It was like Haynes, it was shortly after like Wendy and Lucy came out, and it's on like some I don't remember what website it was, but it was a really cool article. I enjoyed reading it. So yeah, I'm I didn't like Old Joy very much just because I didn't I wasn't really engaged by it, and I don't like nature, so I didn't find the cinematography or the the content inherently engaging on its own outside of that. So, but I do want to give old joy another try some point in the in the future um please do i it's funny because like i i appreciate sort of the terrence malick like romanticism of nature but i can completely understand like this idea of a communal life out in the woods being threatening and sort of deadening at the same time like i could see i could see both perspectives on that because you know, there, 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 there were definitely times I got lost in the woods and freaked out, but uh, just like the idea of being that isolated um, and uncertain about what could happen in your environment, and I, I that's obviously sort of like the, um, you know, just not not necessarily the fatalism, but just the idea of nature being this all-consuming force that you have no control over is kind of uh, represented really interestingly in, in Meek's Cutoff and just the idea of, like... Because I, I, don't, I don't know if you recall when we first talked about Meek's Cutoff, and we'll get to that soon anyway, just to talk more about how our feelings are in regards to the ending. Because I don't think the ending of Meek's Cutoff is ambiguous. And Really? When we first reviewed it... Yeah, when we first reviewed it, that was your reaction. You are like, really? <laughs> I still don't feel so, that way. That's... Yeah, I mean, I just I, I thought it was kind of clear, but I mean, obviously, a, a different person might view it as ambiguous or might see it a different way. But I, we'll get to it when, after sure, Wendy sure. and Lucy. So, but I just, I just yeah. that brought up. I think, like, I think the for idea me, of, if I don't see the hand of of something man made, um, I don't like it. <laughs> you know, I want to I want to see human beings having an impact. Um, you know, it's not that inherently anything that has plants around it I hate, um, mm-hmm. but like I mean that's why I find compel like that's why I find Portland like at the beginning of Old Joy or all during Wendy and Lucy 
though I think te- technically Wendy and Lucy doesn't really take place in Portland, it takes place in like the suburb or something of Portland. But at any rate, like I find those compelling because when uh, wilderness is kind of encroaching into uh, civilization and they're sort of intertwining in interesting ways, like a lot of those establishing shots in Old Joy and just sort of yeah the look of um, the look of Wendy and Lucy. I find that very compelling right. because it just highlights the the, the man-made stuff. Um, so it's not like necessarily I need all urban, no trees. I need a, a I need a New York Woody Allen, like you know, uh, concrete and concrete and steel and glass, and that's all I want. But um, I definitely uh, once you are leaving like roads and signs and like restaurants and stuff, then I don't care. <laughs> then you you definitely wouldn't like a road trip out west. Because no. there's so much no, no, long no, no, no. stretches. No, no, no. That's what I love about that is because you're oh, okay. on the road. You know what I mean? Like you're on the road and you're there are gas stations and they're, and they're like these little oases and it's a very interesting thing. You know, I wouldn't like a road but trip does, if we just literally the, drove through a desert with no roads and no highways. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I read like a, a quick article with Kelly Reichardt saying that like the road trip has completely changed and everything oh, yeah. is cor- corporatized now to where you don't have those long stretches anymore. Yeah, I mean that's that's I mean well that's that's also just that's what we were talking about with Vim Vendors and uh, Paris, Texas. Was just yeah. that idea of like that was a road trip movie where all the diners and all the motels and stuff they show up they're not chains they're just weird little places and I mean that's Vin Vendors not being from America that's all the stuff he found the most captivating um, and that's the kind of stuff that's just gone now and uh, I mean I, I would definitely agree with that though I find there's I think there's other things that are captivating I think there's a tension and there's a weird danger in being away from a city um like when yeah whenever well, i've whenever i've gone on road trips and you know you stop like you stop at an oasis and it's always the same things it's always there's a starbucks there's a sabaro there's a burger king there's a, you know what i mean like there's no you don't see any surprises because they're the official mm-hmm. oasis there's the there's the place with the keychains and the movies and this like a convenience store attached there's all those lottery machines like they all look the exact same, no matter if you're in Ohio or Pennsylvania or where or Indiana or wherever. Well, that's why I would pursue like uh, you know an off the beaten path diner or something. And yeah, those are hard, I, I, but that so few people do that those are just not there anymore. Like you'd have to know yeah. where you were going, and part of the whole thing about an off the beaten path thing is you want to not know where you're going. You know, like I, I'd love right. to go on a road trip with you, Jim. We should, uh, we should, we should go ahead and go on a, a, a road trip together, and uh, maybe I'll massage you in a in a bathtub. I don't know. Just saying. I'm not opposed. Yeah. I'm very I'm I'm very open to new experiences and you know recreating any uh, well I mean you know I'm certain that we can come across a Wendy and Lucy's restaurant or something you know like <laughs> yeah where where you go there and your 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 hot dog gets lost like they they hand you your bun and you're like where's the hot dog oh we lost it yeah so or you, or it's they only serve the most delicious apples looking apples ever can we talk about wendy and lucy and those fucking apples <laughs> I, I just thought of going to to disney world for the meeks cut off ride <laughs> <laughs> all right so so there, you there, don't get any water at the end there are two ways that this can oh. be one is that it's like a, a true-to-life meeks cut off ride and it's just torture and you just 
and you kind of get the feeling that it's not a ride, that it was a homeless person that you accidentally got into a train with. <laughs> and then the other the other way that can go is it's the most Disneyized corporate horrific version where it's like, howdy, partner, let's take the Oregon Trail with Meek. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. And the Indian says how. And the Indian says oh. how. Yeah, exactly. There's this fucking horrible Native American who's just like how. It's <laughs> yeah. like oh, it's like the spirit of America is like a mighty river, like that horrible fifties <laughs> Indian speech pattern, like that bonanza fucking speech pattern. And it's like watch out for snakes. And there's a there's like explosions because <laughs> there's a part where like <laughs> they have to have a sh- old fashioned shootout. I don't know if we're going the right way. Yeah. Oh boy, hang on to your bonnets. Like, yeah, this crazy prospector <laughs> voice. Yeah, we'll do that, Jim. Let's go to Disneyland and ride the Meeks Cutoff ride. Oh my God, that would be amazing. Yeah, I think um, it's so hard. It's really hard for me to choose which I like more because it, it's one of those situations where when I'm watching it, um, it that's my favorite sure. Kelly Reichardt movie between Wendy and Lucy and Meeks Cutoff sure. because. Uh, I, I I love her depiction of just economic hardship and like just the different people she comes into contact with. Some are dicks and you know, some are kind of indifferent, like the, the mechanic and then some are really, really helpful, like the security guard outside the Walgreens and you know, it's it, it just sort of reflects like you know, the more I live, the more I confront this like casually indifferent yet sometimes compassionate world where some people are really cool and helpful and others just are only out for themselves. And, you know, in, in the context of, you know, what she goes through losing a pet and losing her sense of, you know, connection and, you know, obviously having a car breakdown in a town that she's not familiar with and the threats involved of her like sleeping in the woods and like that kind of stuff is just so palpable, like so real to me. Um, and you know, I went on experience with you know a long road trip where I had very little money, and obviously, I didn't ever experience what she experienced. But there are just those certain little moments where you come into contact with people, and you uh, you, you you see humanity sometimes. And I, I really like that she doesn't get too bogged down in like, oh, this wonderful Walgreens security guard. No, we still have to deal with that you know grocery store clerk who has who's on a power trip, you know, and. Like I, I like that she has these really different types of interactions, all the while struggling to you know find where she's meant to go. And again, I think it's a huge downer of an ending. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's possible she makes it to Alaska and comes back and gets Lucy, but nope, <laughs> nope. I don't see that. I, I see. It, I see it as like letting go. I think I'm. I, mean, I think. I think. I think we just made a switch. I think I'm. I think when watching Kelly Reichard movies, I feel. I feel like I'm the. Op, I'm. Tr- I'm the one trying to be the optimist because I care about the character so much. Ooh, and you're, we and, have changed. And you're, and you're the one being like. <laughs> and you're the one being like. No, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm pretty sure she's going to get beaten by an engineer and <laughs> catch her on that boxcar. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go that far. I think she's going to get to Alaska, and. You know she's probably not going to make the kind of money that she wants to make in order to get back there and you know pick her up. And I think in the end she sort of realizes this is what's best for for Lucy. You know, well she does, but that's the sad part is that that is what's best. Um, yeah, hanging about Wendy and Lucy is 
like no one like you'd like to think that it was like well why wasn't everyone in this movie just like that security guard but that's like so not realistic like exactly like, you couldn't be like that i can't be like that i can't be mr to every single person in need who i come in contact with i can't help them all to the best of my ability like I can't even attempt to help them all to the best of my ability. Like, that would just be ridiculous. That would be, you know, you would have to just forfeit your life. You just have to become, um, you know, Mother Teresa or whatever and just be like, all right, well, that's, this is what my life is now, is I'm dedicating myself to that. And you'd have to be able to surrender your sense of self. And, like, you know, like, the mechanic is just, like, I think the mechanic's pretty helpful, all things considered. Like, well, yeah, he gives her a minor... Um deduction on yeah, and he, the toe and, and stuff. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's but giving he's, her But he's definitely more engrossed in his... I mean, I come across that regularly with people in, you know, retail or whatever, where they're more engrossed in their phone conversation yeah. or their job. And, you know, I wouldn't say that makes him a bad person. No, no. But, but it's... I, I like the fact that, you know, she has the, the, these interesting dynamics with different types of people that seem very real to me like i i i remember the first time i saw it, i did think like that grocery store clerk was acting a little over the top and like really yeah he's the Seriously? one he's the one kind of weirdly villainous character um yeah i'm like but dude the the uh the sort of redemption um for me is like <laughs> that you just see him getting fucking picked up by his mom yeah, I was like, oh yeah, of right. course he's a dipshit. He's a fucking teenager, and like he just did this thing, and he doesn't think about consequences yet because he's a fucking dipshit teenager. <laughs> you like that to me? That to me like redeemed everything. Like she can't even stay mad at him, you know, because mm-hmm. he's a, just because he's just clearly an idiot who doesn't think about things and doesn't think things through. And the fact that she can't stay mad at anyone is part of the problem because it's not that the world is conspiring against her. It's that she slipped through the cracks. You know, there's that line. And it's maybe the worst line in the movie if only because it's spelling out the themes too much. But it's like you can't get an address without an address. You can't get a job without a job. Like, like yeah. it's just about there is no really realistic way for this woman to pull herself out of her situation and make money without either the government's help or prostitution. Like, and that is, that to me, for me, like, it sort of, uh, you know, it, it, it crystallizes in that scene in the woods where she's not assault, she's not assaulted, but she could have been, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, by that, by that homeless man in, in the woods. And, you know, she runs and it's, it sort of crystallized for me what the whole source of tension in the first place is, which is like at any given point, she could be sexually assaulted. Like that is, that's, and that's just like the fact of life. And I love that it, it a never happens like that. This movie can be a downer and it can be realistic and it can be about the troubles and the, and the trials and tribulations of someone in that situation of, of a, of a woman who's homeless and, not have to resort to having a, a requiem for a dream. Right, not having to resort to a rape scene or anything like that. Yeah, but like, and not even have it mentioned. Like, no, there are no words. But like, the unspoken thing throughout the whole time is like, well, the one way you can get money is prostitution. Well, the one way you can get them to fix your car without spending all that money is by like sexual favors. Like, it's just like it's just this like horrific possibility that's in the back of her mind the whole time. 
Yeah. And to me, that's like it's so tense, and the way it's handled is so good. And it's just, I think this movie, especially from Old Joy, but again, I think I, I want to rewatch Old Joy, but like it feels like such a step up with Kelly Reichard as a visual like storyteller. Like, because Kelly Reichard does not waste a lot of time on dialogue. Kelly Reichard tells stories about things in between dialogue. Even in the big speeches in Meek's Cutoff often happen, like, in long shots with people's backs turned and you can't hear what they're saying. Yeah, I know. Like, I was watching Meek's Cutoff and I had the subtitles on and I realized, like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have the subtitles on because I shouldn't be able to hear what the men are saying, like, about going north or south or anything like that because you're supposed to be in the perspective of the women in Meek's Cutoff. And like yeah, those those early scenes, especially you know, since it takes place at night and yeah, like the the rustling of fires or, or not that, but just like those, the fact that the dialogue is kind of buried was something that like I had to acclimate to the first time I saw. It. I was like, well, is this intentional? Yeah. Is this bad sound? Like I'm, thing? I'm I'm someone who has really poor hearing, but I would definitely recommend to people to watch Meek's Cut Off without the subtitles, even if you do have poor hearing, because that's part of the point. Yeah, but um, but if but it would yeah. I, I, but as far as like Wendy, oh, go ahead. Wendy and Lucy, like the storytelling of her in that grocery store, and just the first time you see those apples, and they're like, and like forget about the fact that this is like maybe the first. Clo- it's not the first close up in the movie, but it's like one of the very few close ups in the movie, and they're just like polished and they're lit and they're the most beautiful, delicious fucking looking apples you've ever seen in your life. And she, I went and bought out and bought some apples yeah. the next day. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. And she picks one up, and then she realizes, like, nope, the guy's right there. She can't get away with stealing it, and she can't justify buying it. Um, and she just puts it back, and you're like, oh yeah, she never. You never ha- hear her stomach grumbling. You never see her grab her stomach like just being hungry. You just see her have that moment with that delicious looking apple, and you're like, yeah, and you get it, and you get that she's starving, and it's like. And there's moments like that, like in the kennel when she's looking for Lucy and the way it's shot with the camera gliding across all the cages where um, because of, you know, the the perspective, you don't see what's in the cage until it's right in front of you. So every single reveal that Lucy isn't in that one, it's just heartbreaking. It's just heartbreak after mm-hmm. heartbreak of like, Mick, no, oh, this could, no. And it just keeps going. And you have like just 15 little tragedies in that one shot. Uh, every single yeah, one. Yeah, she she does the show Don't Tell yeah. so beautifully. And if anyone wants to know why Michelle Williams is my favorite actress, just watch Wendy and Lucy because yeah. this is my favorite performance of hers and she's given some amazing performances over the years. But like like you said, you know, the, the, there's not this luxury of revealing a mental state through um, externalizing. It's And plus... You know her interpersonal dynamics. You know they're not like always apparent in terms of how she interacts with other people. And I think like you know a normal movie would have her, you know, react more instead of internalize more. I mean, obviously there's that scene in the bathroom where she lets it all out. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly powerful because it's built over all these horrible circumstances and it sort of culminates in that moment. But um, I mean, she makes. You know, she makes Wendy's emotions very accessible to the audience through her eyes and her body language. It's just fantastic acting that, like, I I, th- I think almost like how we were talking about, um, uh, you know, Ethan Hawke working with Richard Linklater. Michelle Williams should work with Kelly Reichardt every time. Huh? <laughs> She's great. Great. I, I think movies. Michelle Williams is 
okay outside. I think like Michelle Williams is good in other movies like Take This Waltz and stuff, but no, Michelle Williams is is really really good in Wendy and Lucy and Meek's Cut Off. Um, and it's also my favorite look of hers ever. So. <laughs> And it's you know superficial level. Yeah, you you like the hasn't showered in two weeks look. <laughs> That's your apparently. Um, yeah, no, uh, Michelle Williams is, is is great in this, and it's so vital that you have a really great actress at the center of it. Um, but uh, yeah, so like, yeah, I mean, and again, it's a simple story. It's it doesn't go to crazy dramatic lengths. There's there isn't some huge tragic scene. The old yeller scene kinda the called old yellerish kind of scene at the end is kind of like like a little bit the closest it gets to just being out and out tragic and you know and and heart wrenching. But it's so subdued for so yeah. much of the time. Um yeah, not, but I, I, I just. Uh, but also the yeah, other thing really, is again, like I said, like I never saw Wendy and Lucy when it first came out because the way I saw, it, always saw it described was just like a woman wanders around looking for her dog, and I think a lot of people do movies like this a disservice by focusing entirely on the languid aspect and for not recognizing that they're actually very traditional stories. Like every, it, there's not, it's not like even like Terrence Malick where shots linger more than they need to or mm-hmm. like it's more about creating a poetic dreamy kind of air like this movie these m- movies aren't dreamy at all like every shot has purpose every shot's part of telling a story and it's a very simple story and it's easy to follow like you know like Jerry has moments that are more you know abstract and they're more surreal and it's more about creating this atmosphere and like you know, and because Wendy and Lucy is languid, it would be easy for Kelly Riker to sort of justify to herself, you know, making this movie twenty minutes longer than it because it's like eighty minutes long, and she could have made this a hundred minutes long. She could have made this, you know, even longer would be stretching it. But like, it but it doesn't do that. Kelly Riker really doesn't waste time. It's it's just that she doesn't. Um, it's it's just that she's slow and steady, but it's. Yeah, and I, I, it pisses me off when people sort of diminish, you know, her strengths and just automatically go, "Oh, Meek's cutoff was so slow. Oh, Wendy Lucy was so yeah, slow." Like, and I mean, I guess people can, you know, have that opinion that it's not working for them because of pacing. But I, fi- I, I just, I find them both like well-told, well-paced stories, like. I'm never bored. Yeah, and, never. And I, I just... Uh, well, I'm, for me, a little bit during Old Joy, but again. Yeah, I mean, that's understandable. And I, I, that, again, Old Joy like, is probably, is, the, of, of the three movies that we've seen, Old Joy is probably the least. Um, yeah. Just what we're talking about. Old Joy probably is the most languid and the most, uh, you know, like, not every scene necessarily serves a dramatic uh, storytelling purpose. Right. Because it's just a more... Um, character-driven movie, I guess, than a narratively-driven movie. Well, it's interesting, like, early on, much like you were saying earlier, like, about how, you know, a lot of movies had to be, a lot of independent movies had to be Tarantino, or at least have that sort of style and energy and flair, and, like, I've always, I've always, like, early on, I was always like, oh, man, please, let me somehow be a part of the uh, sort of 
style of Sam Raimi and to like just go crazy with the camera and be manic and energetic and stuff. And then I don't know if it's age or something, but once like I, you know, found Kelly Reichardt and then you know obviously how I've felt about David Gordon Green, like these types of movies are exactly the kinds of things that I am really um, immersed into and would like. Like, I know the fact that, like, Kelly Reichardt is a film professor, and if I was 20 years old or something, I'd be like, yeah, I'm moving, I'm going to go to her, I'm going to go to her college just so I can get taught by her, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it could, my be, voice sounds creepy it could be an age thing. I mean, we're both talking about, yeah, like, when we were, like, ages 18 to 22 or something like that, and we were mostly interested in the most immediately pleasurable things, but it also could be an acquired taste thing you know like there's lots of movies i didn't yeah. think i would like until i saw them and i loved them like I, I saw lawrence of arabia recently on 70 millimeter and the whole reason i didn't watch it all this time well part of the reason i didn't watch it all this time was like was just that i wanted to see it on the big screen for the first time um and i knew that it was a frequently screened movie so i knew eventually the opportunity would show up but the other thing was i secretly thought in the back of my head like i'm probably not gonna like lawrence of arabia it's probably an epic it's probably boring it's probably too big Cause the, it's probably like the English Patient. Well, yeah, I hadn't seen the English <laughs> Patient, but my experience was Lord of the Rings, and I don't like Lord of the Rings. And I saw mm-hmm. all those in theater, and I was, and at the time, I was sort of like, you know, dazzled by special effects the way any kid is dazzled by special effects. But like, you know, I just, I just thought, oh, that's not my thing. And now that I've seen Lawrence of Arabia, I want to go back. I'm like, I want to watch these epics now. I want to watch fucking Bridge on the River Kwai. I want to watch. You know the the uh, the uh, the Doctor Zhivago. I want to watch all these big movies now. Now that I now that I've conquered that fear, and I think you just you know <laughs> until you see a Malik movie that moves you, you think that you'll hate Malik. Like oh oh, he's those slow, kind of weird, poetic, um, dreamy shots through grass at the at Magic Hour. Okay, yeah, whatever. And then you see Badlands. And you're a fucking teenager, and you see Badlands, you're like, holy shit, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen, and you want to see more Malick, you know? Like, I think I think one of the things about being older is just you've experienced more films, and certainly me and you, having done this podcast, we've just opened ourselves up, you know, we're, we've forced ourselves to watch so many movies that we wouldn't necessarily want to throw on out of fun, you know? And as yeah. a result, no as a result, we've, we've, you know, our palates have become way more sophisticated and way more broadened and we're not just looking for that sugar kind of rush of Sam Raimi as great as it may be you know it's you know it's the most obviously immediately pleasurable kind of filmmaking and you know I don't know like I, I, I'm, I'm yeah, glad that like, I could watch I felt that way about I, I felt the same way though and I was like I'm glad I could watch Wendy and Lucy and like recognize that it was a story being told and not just immediately have to fight like oh why isn't there any snappy dialogue there's no like none of these lines are very good. Like, where's the en- high energy? Where's the big yelling? Like, I'm glad I could. Well, you can appreciate a film's strengths, you know, for different reasons. And yeah. Focus on like, uh, well, the, this aspect of it is great. So I love this movie, and I think, you know, every now and then, like, I think I mentioned this when I was talking to Eric too. Is like, you know, maybe one thing about a movie can stand out and sort of rise above its weaknesses and. That happens to me more often than not, where I'm maybe more forgiving. But but I'm not. But I don't um, think that really applies to these movies because these movies don't really have weaknesses. No, definitely they work not. Holistically. No, I think every I think everything about both of those, both Wendy and Lucy and Meeks, cut off is almost perfect. And um, you know, talking about like how you know opening up our palettes more, like watching watching my first Brisson movie. There's a tight 
80 minute you know movie that's a very a strong character study but yet does so much invention with a camera and surprises you and you know this is an old I'm, I'm waiting I'm waiting like, for I, the movie I, that opens me up to Godard I can't wait I can't wait till I see the I'm looking forward I've to seen, that I've seen like four that, or five Godard movies now and all of them I had no interest in I, they could not be less engaging I'm, I'm, well they could be maybe but, Band of Outsiders yeah maybe I gotta Band see of Band of Outsiders, Outsiders. Uh, or I gotta see like yeah I think you know what I don't think I saw all of Breathless in high school like I always count myself of having seen Breathless, but I haven't seen that in a while, and I it was like high school, so I might have not finished it. That's going to be an exciting episode because I know sure. in the past you've have not been a fan, and I'm kind of a fan, but um, yeah, um, and also I'm really excited about the Nicholas Rogue episode because we're going to be talking about Walkabout, which is one of my top twenty favorite movies, and it it it, it would make a great double feature with Meek's Cutoff because it's drenched in this existential despair in the face of cultural clashing. Um, Walkabout is a lot more, I mean, you know, it's less subdued. It's It wears its themes on its sleeve at times. Um, and there's certainly a lot more um, obstacles for the, the two characters to come across in, like, the Aborigine uh, culture of Australia, I think. And I, I just remember, you know, seeing... Walkabout around the same time as seeing Meeks cut off. I'm like, well, this is kind of my, this is kind of my melu. This is my jam. I'm, I'm loving this idea of people wandering lost, and it could be because of cultural indifference. Because you know, certainly, I don't know that much about other cultures, but at the same time, I'm like, I try to justify it by saying, well, I watched a lot of foreign films, so maybe I learn a thing or two that way, or I watch a lot of PBS documentaries. But you know, I think. I think that's kind of what Meek's cutoff is hinting at too, like just, um, and it's a subversion of of the Western with, you know, like a like a cow like a know it all cowboy too, you know, who's supposed to like you know uh, confide or you know, not confide but, um, just believe what he's saying is true because like he portrays himself as, um, you know, a character that can lead the way. But as time goes on, we know he's not someone to be trusted, and I, I I do feel like as the you know as this movie unfolds, it does have like these incredibly nail biting, tension filled moments. That to me, the 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 very end sort of just happens in a way that I think is really fascinating. But uh, I, I God, I love her. Um, I mean, the, just. The, the long shots in this and um, how slow and arduous it all feels the the, 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 the the scenes where the wagons are going down the hill um, you know just or the, this this densely layered sound design throughout with chirps and rustles and splashes and um, I, I don't know everything about this movie works for me and and I, I the more I watch it the more I, I grow to appreciate it Um but yeah, I love that uh, that, I just, that first that first dissolve, uh, which I had forgotten about, but that first big dissolve from the water to the plains, oh. where it's like, I don't know if it was computer assisted or if it's just a simple this frame dissolving into that frame, but like it just looks like the water is drying up, like it's the most amazing effect. And I mean, I'd be very surprised if Kelly Reichard um, resorted to CG at any point in the film. Because it just seems to be sort of, you know, it seems to be uh, uh, 
just against what she's all about. But like mm-hmm. that that way that it just looks drying out, and you see him in the the distance. And yeah, this movie's beautiful. This movie's really beautiful. But you know, yeah. And I also I also want you to see um, the movie I mentioned earlier, Ida, because. Both Meeks Cutoff and Ida really do something interesting that I don't necessarily like focus on in most movies, but just how an image is framed. And you know, we mentioned the aspect ratio with with Meeks Cutoff and stuff. Ida really does this something kind of similar, where it's like focusing on the lower third. It's not like it's not like it's the antithesis of Wes Anderson, where not everything is symmetrical and you know centered perfectly. And I think that's really interesting. Like show the distance in space that a character is experiencing like you know feeling almost overwhelmed by like this is me being really arty film schooly kind of but just like considering why um an image is framed a certain way including like in Meek's cutoff but more it's it's definitely more noticeable in Ida which can be distracting but I, th- I think it's a really interesting way to film a movie and show a character like experiencing like a sense of loss or something yeah and just just the way like simple tasks people have to do like when all the women yeah. are waking up and they're fucking cooking and they're just sort of commiserating as they're cooking I mean that's the great thing about yeah. this movie is that it's this feminist western um, without I mean you can say that uh, that Michelle Williams at the end is sort of a badass Barbara Stanwyck kind of a character but it's very limited <laughs> like I mean she looks pretty good holding a gun and pointing it at Meek and that's a pretty fun moment but like it's very subdued and it's this sort of feminist story of how they're sort of second class citizens and how that even may play into why she is trusting this Native American um, who's this opaque character to her um, but yeah I love those scenes of just all the women are off to one side and the men are having the discussion and the women are talking. It's like, oh, your your husband didn't tell you, and they're just they're like just treated like children, almost. Yeah. And how There's slowly the, the whole miscommunication, and, miscommunication and, between the sexes, and and then like slowly and but like realistically, like very believably, Michelle Williams starts to take charge, and none of the men oppose it, and none of them like no none of the men are. They just it, this is, it, it's almost like if you want to talk about uh, this being a. Uh, a, um, if you want to talk about this movie being a, a metaphor for the Iraq War, um, the same way that like things got so bad, like if things were great, they probably like Barack Obama probably would have never gotten elected, but like the fact that things got so bad and people were so desperate that they like turn him into this you know this prophet type and they elected a you know they elected a black man into the White House. Like, it's almost that things have to get so horrible in Meek's cutoff that eventually they turn to Michelle Williams. And even Meek mm-hmm. at the end, he's like, I- I'll do whatever you say. And you too, missus. Like, like just that sort of... It, it's it, it, She's like a Barack Obama kind of a character. Where it's like, she doesn't necessarily going to lead them out of this. And you, again, apparently find this less ambiguous than I. Um, and... Uh, but like, uh, but yeah, just the just the fact that she sort of takes charge because someone has to, um, is is a really great and believable context for this sort of feminist uh, Western story, and I like that a lot. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I at this point, I don't think Obama would uh, <laughs> sow some moccasins for people. No. But um, <laughs> no, I, guess, <laughs> I I I really like. In any other movie, I think Meek would have been shot. You know, like in I, I like the fact that you know th- there's a sense of impending doom, and any one of them can die. And I, you know, one one character is wounded, and I, I I just like that the fact that she doesn't go to that sort of tragic end of somebody's gonna die because that's, look at the situation we're in. It doesn't right. turn no into one the dinner party. Yeah, no one dies. No one dies of thirst. No one right. dies of a tragic accident. It's. It's it's almost it's the same as with like a uh, like sexual assault in in uh, in Litwick, Wendy and Lucy where it's more potent if it's just lingering over the whole thing. Yeah, unspoken. It, it's yeah. It, once it actually happens, it's a release of tension, and the fact that the tension is never released is what makes the movie so powerful in the first place. Right. Um, but um, I again, I don't know. I mean, you think they die? Well, I do. I, I <laughs> what makes you what makes I, you so sure that that the uh that their uh Caillou's captive uh will not lead them to water? And that, that and the, that, that tree is not a sign of hope of any kind. Um I see them as marching towards death and the Indian as their guide and it's almost like an inevitability. Um so you, you know, almost see them as like a li- metaphorical Indian guide? Like no, like the same, not, like you not, see not the ending like the same way, like you see the ending like the same way you see the ending of like a, a like a, the seventh uh, seventh seal where they're all like hand in hand with death. <laughs> um, I think there's an acceptance of the fact that they're probably going to die, uh, and I mean, obviously, you can look at it as the Indian is leading them towards water and they're going to be saved. Uh, I just don't, I don't get that impression. I, 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 I see I see Kelly Reichardt as a as an unsentimental filmmaker, to where I don't think she would offer that. Uh, but I don't, I don't I don't think I I agree. But I don't think implying that that's a possibility is unsentimental. I mean, I think movies and I, I, so I'm going to say this with with the with the prelude that I think movies should be judged for what happens in between the first and last frame, and that outside like extra stuff of like well the movie was made this way and they intended it to be this and they intended to be that and therefore that's the way you should read it and you should take their intent into it and stuff like that I don't believe in that for a second so mm-hmm. that all being said um, part of me that makes me and part of the part of me that makes me think this has to be ambiguous in that um, is that it's it, it's based off of Settler's Diaries, and the only reason you could read Settler's Diaries is if they made it. And Meek made many trips, and apparent like this, who's a real person, and apparently most people like he got people lost all the time, and it was never clear whether he didn't know what he was doing or if he liked yank people around or make or like what was going on with him. But he had made the trip several times, and like mm-hmm. to me, the to me that is implication enough that. Like, what's important isn't, like, what's not important, you know, what, what's important is not that uh, they find water or they don't find water. What's important is that um, Michelle Williams' character has taken sort of the lead, and Michelle Williams' character has taken responsibility, and she has left the easy life of being a passive observer of what's going on, 
and she's mm-hmm. taken the much harder life of being an active leader. And she's taking a responsibility. She's prevented the Native American from dying. She's, you know, she's made well, our that definitely makes it. That definitely makes it upbeat in that perspective. I part of me was like wondering too. Is like is is well, the I, Indian just saying I'm done with you guys? I'm leaving, and you know you can follow me if you want to or not. Uh, I mean that's and maybe that's left up to Michelle Williams to decide at the end. And I can't say one way or the other for sure if um, it's going to lead to a, a, a horrible outcome. I just I, I get this sense. I mean, despite the fact that. You know, Michelle Williams saved this Indian, um, and I'm sure he's obviously aware that his life has been spared. Uh, I, I, I almost feel like it, he's leading them towards death regardless. Like, there's an inevitability of, like, accepting, well, we're probably going to die. And a lot of people at the Donner Party had to go through something like that, too. And I know it's not, like, a direct, um, you know, adaptation of what happened in, in, with that. A journey, but um, from, from the feeling I get, and it's maybe just because of how I feel about Kelly Reichardt's endings. I, I just there's something really dark and yeah, uh, um, uncertain about him. But well, uh, uncertain, when I, when I, it's almost well, as if I, it's uncertain, like it's ambiguous. <laughs> well, when I first saw, oh, no, I, I still feel that. that the, it's not a happy ending. It, no, no, I'm not saying ambiguous doesn't mean happy. I think they're very dark. I just think, I, I just think, saying it's unambiguous means that you are certain about how it ends. I'm fairly certain. Sure, <laughs> I'm fairly certain on that on my point. And I, I mean, to look for the evidence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certain that this Indian would probably lead them towards the right path because it, you know he would think that he have, has righteous intentions or at least he wants to you know no, I think he has self-preservation right self-preservation and you know I th- obviously since his life is spared he would um, you know help them out too I don't think he was just abandon his humanity and just be like oh sorry guys I'm out well, I mean, here even if he fucked. has no intention of helping them out it's just in his own best interest I don't think he I mean, he could have whatever humanity. The, the great thing about that character is that he's completely opaque. He's not a noble savage. He's not like he's not like everyone distrusts him. But Michelle Williams sees the good in him, and if only they would see it, then like, no, like she doesn't like him very much, and he doesn't. He definitely doesn't yeah. like them, and he's not like, well, I, you may have taken me your fucking hostage, but I'm still going to save you because I'm the noble savage, and I'm going to save the white people. Like, no, he remains opaque the whole way through, and I think that's important. I don't think it would be inhumane of him to abandon these people who fucking kidnapped him. I just think that in his own self-preservation, the fact that he didn't book it, you know, the fact that he's sticking around um, and he's walking in a direction means to me that he thinks that is where there is water. And maybe they don't get there in time, you know, maybe where there is water, there is also other Native Americans who attack them. Or maybe there is water, and they eventually find their way. But to, that's to me is the ambiguity, and I think it's still dark, and I think it's still depressing. But I think it's not uh, certain by any stretch of the imagination. Hmm. I, I can understand that. I mean, again, they'd be following somebody that they're not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. On, and I don't know. It's it's a really powerful ending. I, I mean, people will harp on it as like being. You know, because kind of a cop out, or at least like 
oh, you know, that's... Because I, I know people who watched this movie and were very unhappy with how it ends because it doesn't offer that easy resolution that you're used to. Um, but I think that's exactly why I love it yeah, so much. I agree. And I can't wait to see Night Moves. I really can't. I'm... I'm I, I, I just hope she continues to make movies despite the fact that she's not making a whole lot of money. Yeah. Because she's, she's become one of my top 20 favorite directors ever based on just three movies. Um, so, yeah, I just... The more the more I think about them, the more I appreciate them, too. And I, uh, you know, I think, I think it'll be interesting in the midst of something like you know your your occupy wall street and a lot of just our political climate right now and you know those people who are struggling with their you know emotional response to certain things going on um and wanting to like embrace activism i i imagine night moves would resonate now with what's going on politically too because there there are definitely those people on the underground who are like I want to do something I need to do something I want to build blow something up because I hate what's happening and I love the I love the premise of Night Moves I, I and I can't imagine not loving it um based on my love for her other movies sure. so and it's a and yeah. it's a it's it sounds like it's the most straight ahead thriller and given yeah. that her past two movies have that sort of tension of a thriller even though they're very different um I'm very excited to see Night Moves as well. Um, and what she does Indeed. in the past. And hopefully she's established enough at this point that she can start making movies more than, you know, every three or four years. Because apparently at this point it's just she can't get movies made. And that's why she has to be a professor and not make any money from the movies she makes. Because, like, it's still at the point where it's harder for a woman to get financing than a man. And I mean, certainly mm. her movies aren't marketable any right, but she's oh, hopefully she's made enough of a name for herself that she has enough of a built-in audience that the movies always eventually make their money back. You know, like Wendy and Lucy is the kind of movie that has endured. You know, it's not there's I'm sure there were plenty of indie movies that generated heat, you know, in 2008 or whatever, but it was Wendy and Lucy that was the one that. Uh, you know, is, is one that people still talk about. Same with Old Joy, and I, and, and you know, same with Meek's Cut Off, and I hopefully that has led her to being able to make movies more often. Yeah. Well, this podcast was recorded long before we got here, so I think we can wrap things up. Was that a re- was that a reference? Yeah, that Meek's Cut Off. Oh, that's person. right. Yeah, yeah. The story's written long before. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Great work, Jim. Yeah, that's a way to wrap it all up. I thought it was pretty good. I'm, I'm working on that. So, <laughs> our top three Kelly Reichardt movies are the three that we've seen, but what order are they in? That's tough. Um, man, it's so hard to decide. But I, I, Is I, it? I think right now, uh, I think yeah, we I think have right the same. I th- uh, God, I want to. I want to go. Wendy and Lucy makes cut off old joy. I think that's what I want to do. Wendy and Lucy makes cut off old joy. Yeah, that's my order as well. That's my top three. Oh wow! Yeah, not bad. Well, like I said, hopefully we can uncover a river of grass at some point and check out her latest 
So, but more importantly, we're finally going to get. We're going to finally ditch these boring ass old filmmakers. Make these boring old movies. Blah. We're going to get Oliver Stone. Our next cut. We're going to we're going to watch all of his fast paced, fast edited movies, and they're going to be right in your face. And they're going to tell you exactly what they're about. And that's the sort of thing I like because I'm a 17 year old boy in 1995. <laughs> I don't think talk radio is preachy or. Tells you what it's about at all. Yeah, it does. It's a very subdued movie. Oh, oh my god. god! Oh god! Talk radio. You know the the part where the you know the the the, the camera is spinning around the <laughs> <laughs> the microphone while he's screaming into it and talking about how much he hates the world. Yeah, that's very subtle. Yeah. So, but it's well, going to be interesting. We don't have a we don't have a guest yet for Oliver Stone, but you oh, know what finally. I do have, Jim. Hmm. I do have a Oliver Stone box set that you got me for my birthday. That's right. There's a shitload of Oliver Stone movies on there. I'm finally going to see Platoon for the first time. Oh, I love Platoon. Probably going to watch a lot of movies I don't like. I'm going to watch JFK, which I do like, even though it's probably, if I were to watch it now, I'd probably think it was a dumb movie. At the very least, Kevin Costner's accent's the dumbest, but... I'm definitely going to rewatch ones I've seen once maybe a long time, like Nixon. I don't remember Nixon at all. Um, I mean, there's definitely some some movies of his that I know are very flawed, but interesting regardless. And uh, you know, <laughs> obviously he's not known for his subtlety at all. So I mean, but I think he does interesting things cinematically regardless. I just I, I mean, he wears his politics on his sleeve. He hates the media. Blah blah blah. But <laughs> I, I still like you know, especially some of his earlier stuff. Um. So yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting. I, I imagine we'll focus on Salvador and Platoon, but he'll be one that we want to touch on uh, quite a few of other of his movies too. Sure. Except World Trade Center, I don't plan on. You don't plan on watching that. World Trade Center? I, I saw it and didn't think too much of it, and that's probably because I saw it after United ninety three. So. Oh, God, yeah. he made World Trade Center. He fucking made that movie. That's a yep. movie. It is indeed. I, I might want to watch World Trade Center just to rem- just to convince myself that that's real. That there was a movie called <laughs> World Trade Center in which Nicolas Cage looks sad with a mustache and a fireman's hat on the cover, on the poster. Yeah. Well, Michael Shannon shows up at one point, so that's a plus. Does Michael Shannon show up and he does the same thing as Revolutionary Road? <laughs> where he's like, you guys are all patting yourselves on the back because you're first responders, but the Iraq war is going to come. It's going to kick you on your ass. <laughs> like, I would love that, actually. Michael Shannon shows was... up as the human representation of the destabilization of the war on terror. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. I mean, we'll probably talk about this on the Oliver Stone episode anyway, but it, it, it's strange how like people went into things like W World Trade Center and Oliver Stone didn't really where his you know political ideology well there was at all. world trade center was like earnest which was fucking weird for oliver yes, stone movie indeed and then w was just like oh the daily shows existed for all eight years of this presidency <laughs> like right <laughs> this, is, this is there's no new territory here i kind of like w i, th- I kind of think it's kind of funny like maybe it's a C plus kind of a movie, but like there's nothing about that movie that's essential. By like it's maybe the least essential movie ever made. Like oh man, finally someone's going to do a satire of George W. Bush. <laughs> yeah, there was a Comedy Central show, wasn't it called That's My Bush? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Matt Stone and Trey Parker got there first, of course. Of course. 
as they usually do with satire. Yep. All right. Well, everybody, thanks so much for listening. You can uh, check us out at directorsclubpodcast.com. You send us an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, send us an email about your thoughts on Oliver Stone. I'm sure you're as conflicted as we are. (laughs) And uh, find me over at Letterboxd at Instant Gym, as well as Twitter at Instant Gym. Oh, and I also have instantgym.com that I've been meaning to update, and I've been writing reviews for thefilmtakeout.com. And uh, I'm on Letterboxd at Patrick Rapole. Still, I've kept it up. I've written a review of every movie I've seen this year that comes to, and including I've written reviews that I could only put on Facebook because I've written reviews of movies that Letterboxd doesn't even have because they're obscure short films and stuff. But, um, so, you know, if you, if you, if you want to read my reviews, I've written 200 plus reviews this year alone. Um, Woo! Uh, uh, so I'm on Twitter at Patrick Rapole as well. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it for me. Uh, listen, listen to Suicide's first album, the self-titled album Suicide from like 1978 or something. That's my that's my plug. Listen to Suicide. It's a great great band. You can always give the new Weird Al a spin if you like. You could give the new Weird Al a spin, but uh, then you'd hear that weird kind of semi-autotune he put on a lot, his voice a lot of the time, and you wonder, <laughs> like, really? oh boy, is this like a choice to, like, to is this part of the parody of modern pop music, or is Weird Al just getting old and his voice can't quite get up there? Mm. I discovered, like, the absolute most irritating thing in the universe is Iggy, the place in between Weird Al's voice and Iggy Azalea's voice. Like that handy, that handy. I got, I got forty five seconds of that song. I had to turn, I had to shut that down immediately. Oh, yeah, that's a shame. Ah, no, great guy, great guy. Weird Al is a great guy. Just got to keep saying that, uh, and not, not state my unpopular opinions about how he, like the movie W, in two thousand fourteen, is the least essential <laughs> thing ever. In which every pop song immediately has twelve parodies of it every time. It, it hits number yeah. one. Um, just say, hey, he's a great guy, and I'm happy for his success. Foil's pretty funny. Foil is funny. Foil is actual, like, he actually constructs a joke. A lot of times with yeah. those Weird Al songs, he's just listing shit. Foil is a two-part. It's a, it's a setup. <laughs> it has a punchline. And, and both are good. Foil's good. Agreed. I'll give you that, buddy. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in a couple weeks for the Oliver Stone episode. I love you, Patrick. I love you, Jim. Goodbye. Can we end the podcast? (laughs) That's our new sign-off is I love you, Patrick. I love you, Jim. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Well, I'm Patrick saying I love you, Jim. And I'm Jim saying I love you, Patrick. Goodbye. going to, to Disney World for the Meeks cutoff ride. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, so they're, you they're, don't get any water at the end. Would you be willing to watch all the Lethal Weapon movies with me in order to do a bonus episode? Yeah, of course. Okay, because I love Lethal Weapon movies. I don't think. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Let's do it. Oh, well, <laughs> wrong. Yeah, okay. That's fine. You'll learn. Okay. The second one's great. They fight with planes, with commercial planes. Okay, maybe not in a post-9-11 world, but if you kind of look at it outside the context of history. <laughs> wait, wait, which? No, third one. What's the one where they fight with planes? I, I'm 
sorry. I had beer for dinner. I don't know what's going on. Is this going to be part of the podcast? It, it might be. It might be part. We can put it at the end of the podcast. Hey, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes. And the Lego Movie. Yes. Those are your front runners for Best Picture, Jim Laskowski. Yes. I'm here with Jim Laskowski. Had some very strange opinions. Uh, what? So, uh, what makes you think uh, Lego Movie will break out of that uh, Best Animated Feature rut and uh, secure that uh, that Best Picture nomination? Because it's funny and it makes you think. <laughs> what, what, what Lego Movie that you think about? Legos. <laughs> well, I just shattered the glass. Go ahead, keep going. <laughs>